This is Graham Wardle. Mark Friesen. This is Marty Up North. This is Alex Craner. I'm Rupa Subramania. This is Tom Luongo, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday. Hope everybody's week is moving along. We got an interesting one on tap for you today. Before we get there, how about today's episode sponsors? Uh, Guardian Plumbing and Heating. That's Blaine and Joey Stefan from... Uh, uh, episode 337. That's a while back now. You know, we've been uh, joking around about a blue uh, a blue collar roundtable, you know, getting some uh, different tradesmen in. And uh, there's been a lot of different uh, people throwing their names out. I think that's going to happen here, whether it's in December or the new year. And uh, certainly the boys from uh, Guardian could fit right in there. Anyways, they are the home of the Guardian Power Station, bringing the electricity to everyone, uh, bringing free electricity to everyone, that is, as well as reliable off-grid solutions, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and beyond. All you got to do is go to guardianplumbing.ca where you can schedule your next appointment at any time. Caleb Taves, Renegade Acres. He's given, uh, he's put together the first ever community spot. And uh, here on the community spot, we're talking about uh, for the kids' sake here in Lloydminster has their next date set, December 7th, the Vic Juba Theater. And it's the Irreplaceable Parent Project. That's Shauna Sundell. She's going to come in and do a presentation. And it sounds like it is exceptional. So if you're in the Lloydminster area, December 7th, that is a day you don't want to miss. All right. Silver Gold Bull. They're North America's premier precious metals dealer with state-of-the-art distribution centers in Calgary and Las Vegas. They ensure fast, fully insured, discreet shipping right to your doorstep and offer a diverse set of services including buyback, wholesale, registered savings, IRA accounts, RRSP, and TFSA, as well as storage and refining solutions. You can trust them to elevate your precious metal investment journey with unrivaled expertise and unparalleled convenience. Your prosperity and security are top priority, making Silver Gold Bull the go-to choice for all your precious metal needs. That's Silver Gold Bull. Dot C-A. All you hunters out there, well, if you're looking for a place to get your uh, animal carved up, deer and steer butchery. They're a fast-growing custom-cutting and wrapping butchery located near Lloydminster on the west side, to be exact. They focus on high-quality, locally-sourced meats with unparalleled customer service who are proud to be from this community. They are currently seeking a dedicated and experienced butcher to join them as an not as an employee, but as a partner. So if you're looking to get out of the... Uh, working for someone mentality and maybe start working for yourself, give the deer and steer a call, 780-870-8700. Finally, the tale of the tape. Brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. He's the current MLA for Lac St. Anne Parkland here in Alberta. He's also the Chief Government Whip and Parliamentary Secretary for Economic Corridor Development. I'm talking about MLA Shane Getson. So buckle up, here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Shane Getson. And I was just, well, first off, thanks for thanks for hopping in. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I, I've created a bit of a rule for myself over the last uh, year that I don't let the podcast bleed into the weekend because I don't see my kids or my wife near enough, even though you, and, and that's going to sound funny to people. You like, you're a podcaster, Sean. Like, how much do you really work? It's like, it's funny how hard you push this thing. And, um, and then you realize like, you know, you start doing it whenever somebody can make it right. 
and you're like, oh, I just can't give up the weekends. Like, cause you know, we had intro to hockey this morning. We got hockey tomorrow. We got this and we got that. And you know, and you get this and people are constantly asking, which is a really big honor, you know, like it's like, yeah. cool. I just can't, I got to say no. And then Shane's like, I can, well, you're, you're uh, <laughs> secretary. No, what, what, what am I calling her? Constituency here? manager. Thank you. Yeah. I knew there was a title. And would this day work? I'm like, yes, it'll work. Cause you teased me with Germany and I'm like, all right, all right, I'll make, I'll make an exception. And, and my wife goes, Shane's coming, you know, cause I mean, you've been to the house before, yeah. you know? And so. Yeah, um, and you've got a great family. Your, your wife is just outstanding. Well, lady. she's being outstanding today. Cause she's like, you're going into work. I'm like. I'm going into work. So well, my wife is at the same conversation, so she knew I was coming down here. It's, well, you're going to see Sean, that's okay, but like knock it off. And I didn't tell her this morning, but I also committed accidentally sort of <laughs> to a big, well, it's another friend of mine. He's the- Accidentally sort well, of. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying line. to plain ignorance, but it's not. But um, th there's only so many few Sundays I'll ever take off. Like when you're a politician, or at least I am, I'm dumb enough to hand out my uh, cell phone number and my cards. So you literally have the Batman hotline. And I try to do these things and catch up with folks. My staff, Kristen, is is phenomenal. She's really good at actually trying to book time off for me, and I'm the one that screws it up every time. And my wife is finally, Kristen and my wife are collaborating to say, no, like, block out these times, don't do it, everything else. But anyway, I kind of broke that rule for tomorrow as well because there's this big, huge Diwali event that's taking place in Edmonton. And a friend of mine uh, worked with him over at Enbridge. He's actually the president of this organization. So for them, it's like Christmas. Like, it's it's a big deal. So quite an honor to be invited into that community to uh, be able to speak and present and talk to them again and share in some of their festivities as well. I'm, I'm forgive me, Diwali. I'm, I'm, I'm illiterate. It's uh, a Hindu event. So basically, they've got um, uh, two of them. Diwali is one. It's kind of like a, akin to our Christmas, and and then the other one in the spring is the Easter. So the whole thing behind it, and I've been to a couple of events, which is pretty cool uh, to go in there and see that. It's literally bringing light into the darkness. So they celebrate this time of year, it's everything else. And if you look at the crossovers, I think a lot of cultures have the same thing. I mean, we're dark this time of year, you know, I'm Norwegian German descent and all of those customs we have for Christmas are kind of there, the lights on the trees, the light at night, the Yule log, all those type of things. They have similar things. And I think when you get down to it, people have always been fighting against the darkness for a long time and dark and desperate times, here's the light into it. And then their spring event, I'm gonna f mess it up so I'm not even gonna try to say the word, but there, it's basically like our Easter. It's all color. It's all spring-like. They're throwing colored chalk in each other. It's a big, you know, um, big event all night long. It's kind of like a Ukrainian wedding when you got the, uh, you know, the midnight lunch going. And it's yeah. just like a, a nonstop thing of, of doing that. So it's... It's pretty, an honor to be invited out Yeah, there. it is. You know, I'm not from that faith and I'm not from that community, but they've uh, really embraced me, you know, so whether it's that... Uh, farm by stuff or the country politics. It's just genuine, on, honest people sitting across the table getting to know each other. Well, we've, uh, you know, um, I was listening back to December 6th, 2021 today. Oh yeah. That's oh, the, yeah. that's the day I cracked my canopy coming down here to see you. Yeah. 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 You, you flew in, got <laughs> stuck here, had supper at the house. Cause I'm like, I'll just get a hotel room. I'm like, yeah, you can get a hotel room, but you're coming for supper. I'm like, don't yeah, be ridiculous. That was, like, that was like, awesome. That was really nice. I'm like, it's the middle of winter. You're stuck in Lloydminster. You're just going to go sit in, in a hotel. I mean, I guess it's a That's oil field. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. realized, but I mean, it's like, ah, just come over to the house. So you get to, you know, you get the full meal deal, so to speak, when you, when you came the first time. And the first time I was talking to you, I was very terrified to ask about COVID. I remember I could hear it in my voice. And it's funny, I said something that I'm like, uh, I think I'd argue with myself at this point. And uh, I said, oh, vaccines are going to definitely be a part of the solution. And I'm, um, and I'd like to punch that Sean probably square in the, in the nose because I'm like, here we sit 
2023 and uh, there's enough studies and i mean you can just go down the rabbit hole of like uh, all the harm that's been caused yeah. because of because of the, the the rollout because of all the well just on and on and on it went i don't think it's any secret anymore although you know certainly the uh the uh, Gestapo media don't like to, to shine a light on it, you know? No, it's pretty wild. And, and getting back into the house again, I mean, two years into this, um, you know, I heard some conjecture from some folks out there. Now they're, you know, secret sleuth trying to figure out what I did for what motives or anything else. Um, so again, you know, there, there was a thing I did. It was back in February. So it was after that. I was down here December 6th. Um, if I roll the shot clock back, it really started for me. Our COVID story for my family is 2020. Like we, we like everybody, it. we got it and we didn't know what it was. It wasn't even called that. Um, you know, my wife and uh, my two older kids, they got really sick with it. Me and the younger ones, it was hardly a blip on the radar. And then, uh, you go through that whole year of all the goofiness that was taking place. Um, I didn't tell anyone my vaccine status, because quite frankly, it's none of the friggin' business. The last thing I need somebody asking me when they're asking me if I want my burger is my vaccine status. Uh, you know, I'd rather take fries with that never bought into the whole QR code thing or anything else and ardent loudmouth in our caucus. Um, if you asked anybody else not breaching caucus confidence, I didn't leave anything on the table. Uh, hence maybe, you know, might explain some of the reasons for my less than stellar rise in my political career because I didn't get elected to be a career politician. So my father-in-law, um, with the plane, I could fly around and go see him and everything else. And he's a retired doc. He ran the hospital up in Laclabish for 30 years. And at that time, we weren't allowed to see people. So I had literally, through some of the media outlets, about a $5,000 bounty in my head. If anyone caught me doing anything breaking COVID rules, well, you know, obviously it'd be a big splash in the media and also some public reward for that too. This is how bonkers it was out there. So I could whip in the plane, whip up to Labish and go see my father-in-law to check in on him because um, he lived by himself up there and, and I could see him at the airport. You know, that was still within the bounds. One of the reasons why we did the air tours and everything else. And he, he looked rough and I'm going, what's going on here? And he goes, well, I got the shot. Oh, and like he's losing balance and everything else and a couple of things. And, um, when, when I got home after that trip, like I was, I was really concerned of him about him. And that was back in April, May timeline of that year. And I told my wife, I said, uh, he doesn't have long, like he's, we got to get him out of the bush. Like he's, he's going to pass away and she's going to, oh, it can't be that bad. Oh, it is. Like this is, this is how bad. And to put it in context, I mean, he was former airborne too, captain in the airborne, you know, gung ho type guy, um, pretty uh, stoic, let's put it that way. And him and I developed uh, a, a good, good relationship, father and son. I was never close with my father, and he uh, he really filled that void. Like Mike was a um, very academic man, but still down to earth, and you could talk to. And he would tell me stuff that he wouldn't necessarily say to his wife and kids and those things. Like we we developed a really good bond, and. Um, you know, I expressed some concerns and I told my wife, I said, quite honestly, if you're not going up there to talk to him, I'm going to bring him in, down here. Like this is going to be it. So it took it about a month. Um, by that time they family kind of got their stuff in a group and went up there and saw him and they couldn't believe. And then, uh, Mike had fallen down and he hurt himself and he ended up in the hospital. And then that was the last thing. So we, um, had the conversation and the, in the deal that my wife had made with her father a long time ago was that, you know, she would respect his wishes as long as it could, no matter what, you know, she was the, the one he trusted with, uh, you know, all the things in his life that, uh, he needed to be wrapped up if he ever got sick. It was, wasn't his wife. It wasn't his son. It was, it was my wife. So we brought him down and we moved him in with us over that summer. So 
we uh, changed things around in the house. We did everything we could. Um, you know, he was with the kids. The kids got to see him lots. And, um, yeah, got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And there was uh, one episode at night. And during all this is taking place, I mean, I've access to information that some people may or may not have had. And I've got kind of like you, you get everybody and their dog sending you stuff, the latest, latest stats from the latest expert, and you're pouring over all of this. And uh, the, 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 the most meaningful information I got was talking to a doc of 30 years. And uh, one night he's sitting there and tears start rolling down his cheeks. And that's about 1.32 in the morning we're, we're talking. And he goes, I shouldn't have did it. Shouldn't have did it. And I'm, I'm thinking he's, you know, you, you know your end date's coming. Like he knows full well the medical condition that he's in. And uh, he had this theory that he had shared with me a few days before that, that um, the vaccinations with the MNRA, it, it literally would accelerate any dormant cancer cells or anything else that you would have. And uh, lo and behold, he became his own lab rat as well in that regard. So his theory proved out on himself. And uh, he, he he says, no, he says, Shane, he says, they, they freaking killed me. Never should have did it. And then he made me promise that I would, in government, never force anyone into a vaccination. And I gave him my word. So knowing that full well, um, and then my father-in-law chose made, like he, he knew how this was going to turn out. So then I had to go in there with him and, and uh, say goodbye to him. And uh, he, <laughs> he picked his own end date. He wanted to make it to his birthday. And then, uh, yeah, he basically died with his boots on as best as he could as a soldier by choosing his own end rather than going through all the throes of when is this? This is uh, August 2021. So we go back uh, into the house, and there was a lot of craziness going on. And uh, what I did was I ran all my own serology and everything else. My wife, um, you know, I'm going to share her medical stuff, but I can tell you full well that there's no chance in hell I would have ever had my kids exposed to a vaccine. And my wife had a medical background, and having her being pressured in that regard, um, there was lots of lengthy conversations. But the way things were shaping up as a politician, it, it almost seemed like my voice was going to be taken away. And if my voice was taken away, that meant I couldn't represent 47,000 people. So um, what I had coming up was my medical for, uh, for aviation. So literally went in and saw my doc, got all that. So it was October 22nd, I want to believe, in 2021. So I go and make sure I've got a clean medical so I don't, you know, I got my ticket to fly. And then uh, it was that same afternoon without telling my wife, I go down just down the hallway in my office where there was a COVID injection station and uh, rolled up my shirt sleeve. Now part of the, the logic in this, the family <laughs> lore, well, here's part of it. Part of the family lore was um, my, my wife's jitto. One of the kids had swallowed a mothball one time and uh, the kid couldn't talk. One of my cousins, Laura's cousins and jitto swallowed a mothball himself while well, everyone's looking at him like he's crazy, but he can talk to the doctor. He can say what's going on that that little guy can't. He knows full well what symptoms he'll be having. And he did that. I, I felt so compelled, um, on the position that I held. I felt so compelled as making sure that I could keep my family out of harm's way as a, as a father and as a husband 
that I would be the one, no one could take away um, the information I would be presenting or doing anything else because it was my own. And I full knew well at that time that it was, it was, it was me. I was stepping into this. Um, I can, I can tell you, honestly, my wife was about ready to lose her mind on me for doing this. Um, you know, with the research she had done and everybody else. And I didn't tell anybody. So as far as my caucus members, they thought I was still that radical guy out there that was digging his heels in and everything else. And little did they know I was mapping everything that was, I was going through inclusive of serology that was post-vaccination, inclusive of lunch information, obviously for my core that I was putting in, inclusive of the testimonies that people were sending to me uh, that other folks wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole uh, in my caucus. And I continued to be that lightning rod. I kept presenting that. And then obviously some criticisms of AHS that went along the way and everything else um, and dealt with that. So I was looking back in the timelines. Yeah, my, my symptoms started. I was sick for two days afterwards, but just... Put well, on the and, strap and for and, every, and for everyone, what he's what he's why we're getting why we're starting right here is because I had Bob on. Bob called you out, and I was like, like Shane. I'm like, I'm, I'm you know, I text you. You got to listen to this because I'm like, I, I don't yeah. know. We got we got to talk about this right off the hop. I'm like, I don't know how else to just not address this because I'm like, you know, did the entire thing get played on me? And I'm like, man, that's a wild thought. Yeah, not you a freaking chance. So it's funny with some folks out there that have their own ideas or take conjecture or take snippets here and there. I've never sat across the table from that gentleman. Um, I welcome that anytime he wants to freaking step up to the plate, quite honestly, because it's my story. It's the things that I did, the decisions I made. And if he wants to play armchair quarterback, maybe he should roll up his freaking shirt sleeve and take it for the team. So by the time that all these different systems or, or symptoms I was having was basically an autoimmune reaction. By the time I went and saw my doc, my wife got really concerned. It was about 20-ish of December. I started getting heart pains and, and those type of things. My jaw was hurting. I couldn't move my right arm. I was I was literally having a bunch of things taking place and still kept it to myself. I hid it from my colleagues and everything else. And I still did my, you know, twice a week tests so I could actually sit in the house. I was all in my own pocket doing that, going over to I-Corps, making sure I could sit in the chamber. And uh, yeah, so Laura told me to go in and see what the hell's going on. So now I go back and see the doc, my, my doc, and he couldn't believe the health changes I had in such a short timeline. And then I start asking him the white elephant, do you think this might be from the vaccine? Oh no, I, I don't know what, maybe it's a rotator cuff thing. From what? Well, maybe you're Nothing's changed, Doc. This is the only thing that's changed since you saw me from my flight medical going in for that, getting blood tests. So we started running a bunch of different tests. I had a, turns out I had a partially collapsed lung. There was, there was a bunch of stuff going on. And then it was right around that first week in January that I started getting all these rashes. Um, so dealing with the other discomfort and those things and arthritic type things and whatever. Um, and then I started getting these rashes on my arm and my legs. And then it was just a few days after that, over the period of another week, it literally, my face had pushed, puffed up and everything else. And the, my doc was concerned at this point of uh, how real this was really getting. And he told me if there's, you know, if it gets really bad, go to the emergency room. And that's where a lot of people had seen those pictures. That's where that started. And uh, I've been healthy my whole life. Farm kid, work hard, you know, kind of take care of yourself, play hard too, but take care of yourself. And, um, you know, my wife and I, we have four kids. So obviously with having four kids, you're in the same spot. You've been in the hospital with your wife before. Some things go well, some things don't. And uh, to have her looking down at me 
uh, being the strong one trying to work through all this was it was pretty wild. So what they end up doing was prescribing prednisone um, for me that basically is like a Murphy switch, knocks down your immune system, and that was it. So internally, um, caucus members, including the premier, were probably a little concerned having this vocal person that's something so visible that um, how to deal with me now. And I was continually under attack, like a lot of folks were. And I mean, think about it. You had a member of the opposition literally going in and hacking AHS. Like, this is how whacked it was for them trying to find out everyone's status. You had a witch hunt going on. Like, it was absolutely bonkers, bizarro world. And it was the local convoy. The only reason why I didn't make it to Ottawa is because I was in the hospital at that time. So when the local one went out to Atchison, you know, I had uh, an EpiPen with me, and I had my son with me in the passenger seat, and we took place in the in the local convoy. And uh, it was, you know, I don't don't get too misty-eyed too often. That was one of those moments, and it was literally like two years of fighting, and everything else was finally breaking that dam that people were coming together. And I kind of told my son, I said, this is the Canada I remember. So we, um, yeah, we did that. And then all of a sudden it was super hyper-partisan in, in the media and they were going after me again. And my own party really wasn't defending me. And I thought, screw it. You want to know? You want to know my vaccine status? Here's my story. And then uh, that's when all of it came out. And February, there was a lady that uh, wanted to do a documentary. She was putting one together. And that's when I did that interview. And I thought at this point, like, you want to know my stuff? And, and again, people made decisions for their own reasons. Um, it wasn't up to me to tell them exactly, but I could say my story. And once I did, I you know, kind of said it was like lancing a boil. I, I got people from all around the world reaching out because I was one of the few politicians that was willing to stand up for people and do the right thing. And uh, to hear somebody two years after the fact spout off from the sidelines, walk a mile in my shoes, buddy, and then let's, let's have that conversation. There's another interview I should let you listen to. Uh, Regina, Regina Watiel is a PhD in statistics from Ottawa. Lovely, lovely lady. You would enjoy her. And she sounded the alarm in 2020 that please do not go down this road. The stats don't add up and everything else. And the thing I stare at, Shane, and you probably wonder, like, I, well, I don't know. Before I hop to that, maybe I should address and go, I can tell you don't like telling that story. Uh, like no, that. it's, it's uh, yeah, it's something very personal. And, and the fact, you know, you have to do this publicly and after the fact where people question your honor, your integrity. Yeah. Um, I would rhyme a lot of things with truck and we'd be sitting out in the parking lot in my normal life. But as a politician, I have to, I have to keep my tongue and mind my manners and be cognizant of the 3D chess match we're playing, not marbles in the parking lot. Like some people have the, uh, the latitude to perform. Well, it's it's one of the reasons why I brought you. You know, I was I was I, I looked at the timeline yep. uh, of everything. Right? It was uh, it was December. Um, I got suggested you come in, and I was like, I'm gonna get a politician to come sit across from me, and we get to talk about uh, get to talk about COVID. Sure, yeah, I yep. would take that. Right? And then it was uh, convoy. And then it was March of 2022, you're on yeah, stage no. with Daniel Smith. That, that was kind of a treat for me. I mean, you know, being a new politician up there and, and uh, having some trust with you, getting to know, and then you had Eric Payne up there, which was pretty cool. And and I can't remember the other gentleman. Andre Murray. Andre Murray. So again, having these type of conversations, right? And, um, you know, at that time, you know, I can call her Danielle at that time, but I'm still very much stuck on titles. There's a matter of respect when you go from... Well, being, I know I got a person I, to a I, for the listener. I was, I was supposed to have her on, um, I 
in two days and they just pushed me to right before Christmas. So maybe there'll be a Christmas with the premier. And I'm like, I want to say Christmas with Danielle, but I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Well, I mean, I can do whatever you, the heck you I can, want. But, but I mean, it's, it's a title and, and, and that's part of it too. Like when you wear the hat as an MLA and I was a sitting MLA, there's, yeah. I, I represent a bunch of folks and there's, there's something that comes with that. And again, I'm being a civilian and whatever, say whatever you want. Yeah, say whatever I want. But as a, as a, uh, a person of the crown, so to speak, yeah, you have to be cognizant of that. It, otherwise, all this process means nothing. So sitting on the stage with her and, and uh, even talking about some of the items openly and even some of the misconceptions she may or may not have had, we got to have that in front of a, a live audience of, you know, 300, 400 people. There was things that she had assertions that she didn't know behind the curtain either. And moreover, why would she? She was still a civilian from the outside. So there's a thing called ca- a caucus confidence and, and cabinet confidence. It's not because we want to hide everything from people. There's literally decisions that we make and can do or have conversations that need to be in that because there's tons of sensitivities around it. You just think about the dollars and cents. You want to talk about insider trading? You want to talk about all your political leaders are looking at on a strategy of how how to fight back against Ottawa. Um, Why would I put that on the cards, all cards on the table until it's time or reformation of the healthcare system? During the campaign, from our interview, which is pretty wild, the opposition dug up 45 yeah. minutes into a conversation we had two years ago about me wanting to privatize healthcare. That wasn't the conversation, but they took this sound bite that throws it up on the table. So again, we're playing 3D chess here, Sean, not marbles in the parking lot. Well, in talking about uh, chess, you know, like this is where I bring up Regina with Teal. So I, I interviewed this PhD in statistics. This had to have been like two weeks ago. It was, it was very recently. And she reminded me of Chris Sims, how Chris Sims can just like break things down from yeah. the tack. And you're just like, oh, my God. Regina Wattiel, PhD in statistics. And she just went from day one, everything the government gave us, you could just see like, this is a lie. This makes zero sense. This, this, this. And so I, 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 I hear your entire story with your father-in-law, correct? Yep. And I see the respect. And he tells you, don't force and don't do this. And then you end up taking it because of, you know, like this immense of like, well, we need to have a voice in there. And you go, and if people had given the, if government, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the, how to put it, but like Regina Mateel was sitting there. She's written a book on it now. I mean, tons of people have written books yeah. on it. And I used to think, ah, nobody saw this coming. But there's Regina Mateel. I'm like, when were you doing this? When were you saying this? She's like, ah, uh, like March, 2020. I'm like, like, screw off. Like, really? Because, yeah. I mean, in March 2020, I'm battening down the hatches, and Sean is in his under a rock for three months. For three months, I think maybe the world is coming to an end. And then you come out and you go, hmm. And then, of course, by the time I talk to you, you know, like, that's that's a full-on year and change after that. You're going, ah, I think we're going to get by it. I'm going, well, maybe you're right. And then, you know, in that time you go down, we get the Freedom Convoy. It, gets, it actually gets way worse after we talk, in mm. my mind, you know. We go into this dark, dark winter of about three months from when we talked where it just kept getting worse and worse. And they're going to do what? And oh, my God. And then the Freedom Convoy. And, you know, I, I could never understand why we couldn't get politicians and, I, and I'm saying this before we start. Yeah, no, and, it's not and, that I single out anyone. And for the crowd one. out there too, I still don't consider myself a politician, so it's, I'm okay. It's the class of politicians, yeah. why they couldn't solve it. Why they couldn't just like, and people have, it's power, it's this, it's this structure, it's that. And what it took was the entire population going, or a healthy majority of it, even though they don't want to say that, going, yeah. no more. We're done with this. And now, you know, you're seeing all the 
aftermath that where you know like you got the coots four sitting there and and, yeah. and i'm gonna park that for a second because i'm gonna come yeah. back to regina with teal and this why was it and maybe this is because you got things from the federal government i don't understand this well here's, but why here's is one it, thing why is it that the regina with teals didn't get as much of a voice as the the doomsday or whatever it was on the other side because i will i will preface this by peter mccullough when he first came on the podcast yep. said this is the super bowl for doctors we are on the front lines, and he was taking this like this is as bad as it gets. But now if you listen to McCullough, you know, like he's, you know, he's he was one of the frontline doctors. Pierre Corey is the same thing. All these guys are the same thing, and they just got pushed aside and pushed aside. I don't know. I'm Yeah, so folks think that, that there's um, lots of conversations taking place at the political level. Okay, well, how new are you to the system? It's an organization that's been an organic thing for how many hundreds of years, um, predating our entire country, so Westminster system, a thousand years. How real do you think politics are? Like, do you think your voice matters? Most people don't even friggin' pay attention. They don't show up and vote. They don't, they're not participating. But the other side is, because they know how fragile the system is, how you can hijack it, how you can put people in places. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. When you're paying attention and everyone shows up in those votes and they're getting their people applied to these boards and your school board trustees are getting there and your curriculum's getting in there and the teachers are in there and, 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 we're all playing catch up. Yeah, we've all been playing marbles in the parking lot. You, we've all been playing marbles in the parking lot. They've been playing chess for a long time. Like how far back do you want to go down the rabbit hole? Like all I got to say is, you know, the conversations you and I have are genuine. The, the conversations that you have with, with folks on your podcast, they're genuine. I might not agree with them. They might not have the same information I do. And moreover, I don't, may not have the information they do, but they're real and genuine. And I would propose that because we've had these dialogues over the last couple of years, because this is that tipping point, that inflection, that it finally people are waking up and thinking it's real. What is concerning for me is that folks apply this other level and think that every organization is the same thing. Is it imperfect? Uh-huh. But like Winston Churchill said, this is the worst thing until you look what else is out there. So if people want to get off the damn bench, participate, be involved, step up, go do it, get involved. And we can have this discourse and you can have these conversations. But to think that as a newly elected MLA, I had the same information as someone who's been an administrator and stuck in an organization behind the wall, not as an elected for 30 or 40 years, that might be even intergenerational. Hmm. Good luck. But the only way, and I honestly believe this, God's, God's honest truth, we had some conversations about a pendulum yesterday because we're out at a, at a Penware conference in Regina and speaking with another gentleman saying, hey, maybe the pendulum's finally shifting again. And my concern and my cautionary note is it's not going to come back on its own. This is, the, the other side has been planning this forever. We've got this chance because a few things, a few fits hit the shan, so to speak, on this. And we've got a chance for people to work together. What they are going to do is try to divide us. They're going to drop people in behind the lines because they already have them in there. And they're going to start to disrupt it and get us to tear ourselves down again. Again, if you're looking at the right side of the political spectrum or the honest average person who really didn't pay attention, I can manipulate pretty easy. We're all like a bunch of flipping cats on the floor and you take a laser pointer and whip that around and then somebody stand in the corner like the lady you mentioned and get their attention to talk about something else. We're all chasing that little light bulb around. And the person waving the light bulb isn't the one in control. The person waving the light bulb is working for the one that's in control. Their job is to distract you. So my, my, my thing is, maybe we got a chance that they actually caught their attention. Somebody heard some sound. We got a different light for a change. Follow us back this way. We got to work together to make sure it's not, not the best, 
but let's start working on the same thing and look at big picture items. Don't tear each other down over a little minutia and talk about who did this two years ago, who did that. We're right here, we're right now. You got a team on the field, freaking put them to work and hold us to account. But you can't hold me to account by sitting in the parking lot playing marbles. You got to stick there. You got to be in the game with me and you got to know that we're going to make mistakes and missteps. And moreover, I can't do it on your timeline that you can. This is a big cumbersome machine that we're working through. I only get a four-year opportunity of which there's maybe three years to be able to do some of these things. Like it's a big machine. The machine and behind the system doesn't stop. It doesn't take political breaks. It doesn't take electoral cycles. It's been marching on for years and we're the interlopers. So yeah, get on side and give us a hand here. Energy corridors. Oh, I love it. You know what's funny though? <laughs> you may, you go back and listen to me talk to you. I'm like, oh my god, I keep saying hopeful. I hadn't said the word hopeful in, you know, yeah. it'd probably been it'd probably been a year, if not two. And I said, you think you can ha- it happen that quick? Yeah, I think it can. And here we're sitting in 2023, yeah. two years almost to the date later. And now you have more information than me, but I look at it and I go, Jack Squad has happened. Really. So, and well, t- but oh man, okay. Well, so economic corridors. We had to call it something different. If I called it a transportation utility or transportation economic utility corridor, everyone can kind of put it into a box. But when we pitch the concept of economic corridors, it means different things to different people. And there's there's the uh, the wisdom in the in the whole thing there. Because when you start looking at pathways of economics and tying regions together, um, all of a sudden you take all that other conjecture, the stuff that, you know, people have been putting the laser pointer for years on. It's not about pipelines. It's not about roads. It's not about telecommunication lines. It's not about the commodity in those. It's literally about tying regions together. So since we had that first conversation on economic corridors, we put out uh, a report February 18th, 2022, I believe, so we managed to get that out. It was never released. The Kenny organization didn't make that public. Moreover, didn't drag it to to the uh, table in the cabinet room. So we quietly worked with a bunch of different regions and folks that were involved in that. We kept moving the ball downfield. We had, um, um, I'm not sure if you heard, but we had a leadership race that was taking place. Didn't, so didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah, some of, some of the top candidates, um, what they ended it's up It's funny, my, fir- my first text, on, I went back because I wanted to see what my first text yeah. to you was on the new phone that everybody texts now. And my first text was, are you running in the leadership race? <laughs> yeah. That was my first one to you. Yeah, well, if, uh, so there was a couple ifs on that one. Because um, again, never plan on being a career politician, you know, didn't and still don't. But uh, where I kind of put it to their, and it was a conversation I had with my wife. And again, it was similar to yours. There was a bunch of folks reaching out to me because there was that level of trust. And um, knowing full well what that position meant. If there weren't a couple good candidates that I thought I could trust and, and work with, and uh, if my health, like I would have done that if, if Travis and Daniel weren't running, um, even with all the health things I was going through, I would have thrown my hat in the ring and just went at it. But I had health issues that I was still trying to work with to get that back. And there was two really strong candidates. So that's where I kind of backed out of it. But with the uh, leadership race and the candidates, there was a number of them that knew what my economics corridor report was about. They knew the ramifications of it, inclusive of, of uh, what Germany's expectations were with looking at energy security prior to the invasion of Russia or Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So the candidates that won, there's not by chance that they happen to be talking about economic corridors on their campaign, nor is it by chance that we now have a ministry of transportation and economic corridors. So as a private member uh, doing that, we managed to get that across the line. And then going in prior to the actual election, we had a memorandum of understanding signed between three prairie provinces to say we're supporting economic corridors, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So in essence, 
we've just linked up the Prairie Provinces. Alberta gets access to Hudson Bay through the corridor model of what we're looking at. Manitoba can have access into Saskatchewan, Alberta with their hydroelectric potentially weights and measures and we start building uh, roads going back and forth and tying these things together. The average person running their truck up and down the highway doesn't have to work, worry about three or four different axle weights or dimensional loads or running times or anything else. We're starting to harmonize this. And then Penoir, so I'm literally, I'm down in Boise, Idaho um, in July of this last year and I brought up the discussion of economic corridors. So this is literally Alaska, Alberta, Saskatchewan, the territories, Northwest Territories, Yukon, um, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, talking about this whole corridor model. So I spent three days whipping around talking about that. By the end of the conference, I had the person who was leading it speaking up on stage about economic corridors. We just had the leadership uh, update here. I spoke for three hours basically on economic corridors. Now in Whistler in, in uh, July, we're going to have a half-day session on it, and they also asked me to lead up their whole transportation group. So, so this is Canada, U.S., and I managed to meet a, a guy that was, uh, his name's Lauren, and he runs a group out of Texas that's uh, um, ports to, to planes. And it's essentially that same model of trying to connect it all together. So literally when I laid out my presentation, it's Texas to Alaska, here's how we build these things. And you wouldn't believe the number of people that their eyes are lighting up of how this works. So you might not have seen a corridor announced, but now you've got a bunch of groups out there talking about corridors and the investment community went from lending cash to actually investing in infrastructure. And I also gave the model, the, the economic corridors model to the Consulate General of India. So I'll remind me to come back to that before Sparkle Socks when this, he did his infamous <laughs> flight over to the... This, this, this is what's funny about it. You know, this is um, what I'm learning, you know. <clears throat> I'm going to go back to Julie Panessi. This is like one of the first episodes I ever did on COVID where, you know, well, first five to ten. <clears throat> and I can't remember if it's just after she lost her job or just before. One of the two. I'm saying, how long is this going to last? And I throw out like three months, six months. Everybody thought three months. Maybe and and she looked at me like, you know, and I, I've told this story lots on here. Listeners have heard this lots. But she, the look on her face, I wish I could have just put, I should have just taken a snapshot of it and just put it on my, I, wherever. Just be like, you're a dummy and you don't know enough. Because she's like, decades? And I'm like. Really? Oh. And, you know, I, I, I come back. And the thing that I always struggle with politics, it doesn't matter the issue. It always takes time. And so you, I look at it and I go, hey, 2021. I can, I can make things move quick in a dictatorship. Well, <laughs> 2021, you go, yeah, no, like, like you're, you're saying, uh, hopefully, uh, you're like, yeah, we're going to get this going. And I'm <laughs> thinking in my brain, I'm going, yeah. 2022, they're going to announce it. 2023, we're going to have shovels in the ground. You know, I don't know. No, no, no. But it's, and that's the problem where, where folks get <clears throat> caught up. So it doesn't have to be a new corridor. So the corridor is how do I get my stuff from point A to point B? And the, the most, um, the fastest way isn't necessarily a direct line. So when I've got First Nation leaders that are sitting out there pitching their own corridors based on the model that we talked about, that alleviates a bunch of things. So they're literally going to connect things on the, on the map. It could be looking at a right of way that has partially pipe. You could be looking at existing rail infrastructure. You'd be looking at time. So it, you know? the the idea that you were running with has really started to evolve even oh, uh, since well, that where was you the, started. Yeah, that was the idea from day one. And then once you establish what is, is, you connect these regions well, together. I thought, I thought the original idea, and forgive me, because yeah. maybe I'm just, maybe I'm remembering an well, old conversation. Well, people remember 30% of what we talk about. Probably. Yeah. I thought it was like... Uh, I don't know. We'll just say a kilometer wide because I don't remember the oh, dimensions. The one railroad to Alaska? And it was just like everything in there. And that way, that was your 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 corridor. Now you have, you could have power 
Oh, yeah. The, 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 I got to send you my PowerPoint presentation from three years ago because the model hasn't changed. It, it And it's interesting, again, when I talk about corridors, it depends on what people are, are familiar with. They typically uh, gravitate towards that concept. So if you were a pipeline guy, you would think, okay, it's a pipeline. If you're a railroad guy, you're thinking railway. If you're thinking a highway, and that's, it's always really cool. The, the thing is, it's all of the above. What you're literally finding is a linear um, conduit that you can put multiple commodities in multiple infrastructure within that. And your event horizon that you're looking at is 70 years of build. So what would I be able to put in this thing for seven, seven years? Seven or 70? Seven zero. 70 years of build. Yeah. So as an example, when I'm t speaking to Chief Isaac about one route that gets us uh, from basically northern part of Alberta up into Alaska, um, it was 2,600 clicks of right-of-way. I was looking for two kilometers wide because I could drop a ton of infrastructure in there for a number of years and for strategic purposes too. But I would need about a kilometer of buffer for uh, wildlife. So whether it's caribou protection or otherwise. So the pitch went really well, you know, there's, you know, within a group of chiefs that were in there in this economic development group. And I was the first one to pitch this idea, this concept to them. And uh, my concern was, okay, and you got to build um, through a lot of distrust over the years that's been built up. So that's the first thing you're stepping into a room like that. So you got to be not the other, just the next new car salesman coming through. So you have to establish that trust. And when we weren't talking about a commodity or, or a type and we we're talking about the concept, the, the comment that came back to me was, and I'm waiting for it going, okay, there's one problem. It's two kilometers wide. And I'm going, yep. And in the back of the mind, I'm thinking, okay, Frick, I can maybe narrow this thing down to about 750 meters and, you know, look at that. And he goes, can we make it 10 kilometers wide? Sold. So the concept there is when you look at seven generations out, when you look at most First Nations groups and communities indigenous, they're, they're, um, they're always trying to look those generations. So if I look at 10 years per generation, 70 years. If I'm going to do something, if I'm going to do a disturbance and I'm going to put that in place and spend the money and the time to do it, do it once, then we've established a corridor, the backbone, if you would, for those type of items. And now where it's getting really important, uh, when we, prior to doing the corridor study, this is predating invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. And here's how it played out. So what the media saw was the chancellor from Germany comes over here looking from gas. Our prime minister says there's no business model. Come back in 10 years and we'll get you hydrogen. So Germany has to go over to Qatar, signs a contract with Qatar, and then 130 days later, if they, they've got their receiving stations up and running and they're taking gas. Why did Germany come to Canada? Because Germany was expecting a yes. The vice chancellor of Germany reaches out to Christopher Freeland. Christopher Freeland reaches out to Minister Taves. Minister Taves reaches out to me, who's working on this corridor model, and he asks, can we get gas to Germany? How much can we do it? Where can we go? Told him, here's two weeks. Give me two weeks and I'll work out some some solutions for you. Take it back, goes up the food chain. Here's the answer. Here's three or four different ways that we can do it. Tell me the volumes and we can make this happen. They were expecting a yes. So this recent trip that we took back over to Germany uh, with uh, MLA Rosewell and myself, that was the, the continuation of that conversation. We have a lot of interest over in Europe of what we can do, but we have to sidestep the feds. We have to present and represent ourselves. And the economic corridors model is the salient point that everyone can get their heads around of how we do it. Why do you have to sidestep the feds? Because they're a cluster. Like I can't say it in a nice way. And I can look at, um, <laughs> there's a couple things I could tell you off camera where, my, where I think it is, but as a politician, the closest thing I can say is it's a cluster. They're not necessarily working in our best interest. Let's put it that way. So there's um, even to the extent of India. So I'm literally 
through one of those events, you know, that uh, it was a Canada Day event. So my friend had me come up and speak. Turned out it was the Consulate General from India was speaking at the same event. So him and I kind of hit it off. And uh, one of his staff invited me, and I'm on holidays, you know, to your point, supposed to be on holidays. I get invited <laughs> to these two other subsequent events, these Indian events, and I'm, you know, fighting the battles at home. But this is this is a big prize. Like, India is a big prize. Fourth largest economy in the world, largest democracy in the world, largest population in the world. I mean, that's a big prize. And we've got a really strong connection to India itself, you know, just, just with our communities. So when I get invited by the consulate general, I've got to explain to my wife, like, you know, all of those things. And so she gets it, begrudgingly gets it. So we go to two subsequent events. The last one before he was catching the plane to head back to Vancouver, he invited me for breakfast um, at his hotel where he's staying at. There was about four or five of us. Laid out the models of what we could do. And all of a sudden that is taking form and shape. And he says, well, yeah, you can do this, but you'll never get your stuff built because First Nations are inside. And I said, well, here's the corridor model. They want to buy all the oil we can give them. They don't care. They just want to stop having to buy it from Russia. They want to get all the gas we can get them. They want our stuff. They like to work with us. Saskatchewan's done a phenomenal thing with all the pulse crops having their their guys over there. Our offices closed up during COVID and it was only in one region. One office in the fourth fourth largest economy in the world. Like we've got to get our heads in the game. When you're waiting for the feds to go out there and do this, not going to happen. So the consulate general was trying to get their energy minister to come over. You know, it was only in a few weeks down the road. It was the World Oil Conference was being held down in in Calgary. Modri ended up calling the the house back to order. Couldn't get the minister, but we got tons of their industry guys. That consulate general pulled together those people, got them in the room with our folks down in Calgary. This is how this happens. And meanwhile, you got fancy socks goes over there and accidentally screws up this bad. Like uh, that one smells rotten to me. How do you accidentally do that? And I think he has a large affinity with China. That's my, you know, and I'm going to on the record now and saying that, but there's way too many things lining up that just don't make sense. So you would knowingly try to PO a country off that could be one of our largest trading partners. Could I, uh, could I throw something you can either agree or disagree with me, but I, I, I assume, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that's probably hard to understand, even for a guy like myself is I just assume, you know, you're, you're, UCP or you're conservative federally or whatever, and you're all on the same team and you're all working to the same goal. Oh, no. But but when you play 3D chess or you even see, you know, I hear like Tom Luongo in my ear talking about the United States and the rhinos and all the different things that are, you know, where they've infiltrated the different parties. And it just seems so, well, it's why politics is so probably dirty, to be honest, right? Like you think everybody's pulling in the same direction. You think everybody in Canada, for the love of God, would just be like, yeah. Germany comes over, they need things, we have them. It would help our population, like our entire, it would pull unity. It would just pull us together and say, no, we're going to shut that down. And we just keep, you know, divide, 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 divide. And uh, one of the things, you know, that I think it makes complete sense, but is really like funny to say aloud, is just that there's people working against you all the time, uh, whether they're in a different party or the same party. Well, in, in some of it, as bad as it sounds, like this is my observation, it comes down to people. Like in business, if if we've got a goal and objective and you've got a corporation, publicly traded or organization, thinking that organization is all homogenous, it runs like the Borg, good luck. There's tons of politics that take place behind those businesses as well. You're beholden to the shareholder to show profits and all those things, but all the politics that takes place behind there, I can tell you full well, I've been in that world. It's the same thing. 
And then your politics is the same thing as the corporate structure. Running world. a big well, in, in for me, for what I've seen observed, yeah. and everyone's going to have their own slant on it. But that's how I've managed to work through this system. Um, and I'm a bit of an outlier. But when I start to look at it that way, that's literally what I'm doing. I'm laying out and trying to get relationships to be able to put out some set goals and objectives to try to get them dragged across the line at, at those times. Sometimes you have to be very assertive. Sometimes you have to be very quiet about things. You have to get consensus. And other times you just run with it until somebody tells you to stop or can't stop you. And you have to also gain momentum, not only within your organization, you need help outside of your organization to do that. So that, there's where some of the conversations come in with municipals, um, politics, uh, that's where some of that conversation comes in with the businesses, et cetera. You, you need to have kind of everybody pulling that direction for a common goal. Because if you leave it too, ma- or too micro of a model, people tear themselves apart. But I, if I give you a grand vision of economic corridors, nation building, doing these things for the better interest for 70 years, people can start to go, holy flip. Now, the, to your point, well, when's it going to happen? It's happening but I'm giving you a 70-year event horizon of how this works yeah, you're out. you're talking about 70 years and Sean expects it to happen in seven days. Yeah. But in the seven days category, we had a memorandum of understanding to that concept and that model between three prairie provinces. We haven't seen this forever. Has has the um, has the NDP, does it matter with uh, the government taking hold in uh, Manitoba? You got- uh, So far not, because the, the, model, the, the model so far, and we have to sit down across the table with them formally, but- uh, the model so far seems to hold regardless of in, in ideology at the, yeah. at the top. Because again, it's it's a seven generation thing. It benefits so many people. It, it It's not about a commodity or, a, or an asset type. It's about literally building the nation again, the way it should be. Northwest Canada, strong and free. Tying that in, making sure we have our, our number one trading partner with us, growing new trading partners. Globalization 2.0 is being redrawn as we speak. So either we're at the table being part of the solution to it, or we're going to be picking up the scraps at the end of it. A lot um, of people don't like the word globalization there. Well, it's, or it's globalist or well, it, I can it, tack about 15 words in there. All I can, all I can say is fasten up your chin straps because it's happening with you or not. So when I'm speaking globalization, it depends on your definition. Who are my global trading partners? We have to put, in my opinion, again here strongly, and it's, you know, in my mind, it's been ratified in the last couple of years of, of events taking place. You have to have Fortress North America. When you have North America, that's 100%... Um, standing on its own feet. It's got its main critical elements, resources, uh, minerals, um, rare earth elements. When you have that all in check, when you have its infrastructure in play, when you're feeding yourself, you can do that with each jurisdiction. When you've got a, a tight trading market and your defense is sound, um, North America, you cannot beat that model. Others have been envious of it for years. So if you're allowing that to be picked apart, so then if you look at your supply chain, your logistics, Right now, you can't have everything in your own backyard. We can't build it all because we've allowed it to to dissipate. But globalization 2.0 is being redrawn as we speak. You're going to have new trading alliances and dependencies that are going to be tied together. You're going to have new packs that are coming up to it. And you're going to have dependencies on... So when you talk trading packs, forgive me, you're like the one that comes directly to mind is BRICS. I just think of, of Russia and... India and Brazil and, you know, and China and on and on. They're backstopping a bunch of things. But where it gets confusing for a lot of folks is that, again, just because you've got some jurisdictions that are signing compacts or trade deals with others doesn't mean we can't work with one or two of them within those organizations. So you're saying it doesn't mean we can't work with Brazil or, or, you know, take your pick, India. But yeah, in in India, honestly, that's where we got to go. India is, is... 
potentially by 2045, they're larger than the U.S. economy. Like if you're going to not pay attention here, this is, think about that. You've got the largest trading ground. They just landed something on the moon. Like India is, is a superpower in that region. And quite honestly, um, I can predict. Uh, what did they land better. on the moon? Why did I miss this story? Yeah, south side of the moon, they landed a little uh, space rover or whatever kind of thing to take. Yeah, like they're, they're literally a, a nuclear power and they're a space race country. I did not know that. Yeah. Although at times I, I, I have three young children and I'm more worried about uh, doing the starfish with my youngest on the well, ice. And, you know? and part of it, it gets a blip on the media here and there and no one pays attention. Well, right? it's in, you, you the only the, thing we get from from India these days, um, you know, uh, is is <laughs> Trudeau had a plane full of cocaine, which well, was hilarious. And then I had on uh, Rupa Subramanian. She's like, no, that's... The guy was being facetious, like he was being a smart ass. Yeah. And then there's no truth to it whatsoever. I'm like, oh, I'm glad we cleared that up. Because, I, I mean, if you if you can't speak the language, which I can't, and he's just saying all these things, you're like, oh, my God, right? <laughs> and then and then she's like, no, like he was just, and I'm like, oh, okay. But it's made for a funny headline because, I mean, yeah. at this point, you know, everything's falling apart for Trudeau and the liberals. Like it has well, been an absolute and, spiral. And the encouraging part with um, India being the grown-up in the room, they know full well that he does not represent Canada. So Modri came up with that. And then, coincidentally, we had a, another event that I was at, and it was... Um, Six six ministers and the premier presented literally to our consulate corps down in Calgary. That was a couple of weeks ago, so I was there as well with being the uh, the premier's um, parliamentary secretary for economic corridor development. So I report directly to is her. Is that your that. title? Yeah, it's one of them. <laughs> and uh, so the cool part with that is it's also inclusive of international trade. So Sparkle Socks does his little swan dive routine, messes up a bunch of relations on a number of levels. Um, being there again with that same consulate general, going, okay, where are we at with this? we're full steam ahead. Like we'll still continue to, to work with them. They actually invited us to come over in January and February and, and to continue the conversations. So the interesting part is that we can sign memorandums of understanding with other state governments or other provincial governments in other countries. We can literally take that show on the road ourselves. Saskatchewan's doing a phenomenal job of it and Quebec has been doing it for a number of years. So if we continue to be assertive, we answer the questions that the folks have. And they had a ton of questions throughout the mainstream media items, the some of the conjecture about the solar panels and the wind fire and the renewables. So they could ask us directly and get a direct answer back. It always comes down to that conversation. Are you a proponent of wind and solar? I'm a proponent of energy. So if it fits at that time, there's no one silver bullet. So if I can use it as uh, peaking or if it happens to be a That sounds like a political answer. No, no, it's a, it's a, technological answer. So at Enbridge, pipeline company, we had solar sure. panels and windmills. I'm one of the guys that helped build out 350 windmills down in Lethbridge back in 2009 and the Montana tie line now that exists between Montana and Alberta. So you put your solar panels and your wind farm where you need it and when you need it, but it's a, um, it's a bonus. It's not a base load. Never has been, never will be. So when you listen to everybody trying to, I mean, Germany had to have been fascinating then because oh, yeah. they're treating it, correct me if I'm wrong, like it is going to be baseload. Like it is like, this is the way we're going to do yeah. the world in, in 2024 and moving forward. The world is suggesting, you know, like this is a, this is a giant argument out there. This has been an argument for about, for me the last year, cause I've been paying attention to it, maybe longer, but for other people, it's been 15 years, right? Like, like this, this argument that, uh, renewables, 
and it's funny what gets classified as renewables. That's that's that, a that's whole. That's the political part. Oh God, it's a whole other thing. But this this solar, this wind, that it can be. Well, I mean, it it, it can work. It can be the thing. No, Shane, but, like I mean, it's energy. It's yeah, great, and it doesn't. So you can't rely on one thing for that. Otherwise, we would have done it years ago. So when you look at what Germany's doing over there, and it was really cool. So we did a pause on the whole renewables thing because 80% of the uh, investment in, Alber- in Canada was in Alberta in renewables. Like it was the Wild West, and it still is until we get this ratified. You, and again, coming back to that corridor model, if I'm playing Sim City and I've got, you know, entire the Pacific Northwest and then tying into a, to Texas, that's the type of thing that I'm looking at here. When you start looking at that overall infrastructure, you start dropping in the assets where you can have them, and you start putting it close to where you have transmission lines, as an example. You can't start putting so these instead things. So instead of putting windmills out in the middle of the boonies and then having to build transmission lines out right. to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or sterilizing farmland when we got to feed people. People people can't, if they're not watching, they can't see the look he just gave me where he rolled his eyes at the, the like, you know, like, let's put let's put windmills in the middle of nowhere and then build out the infrastructure to well, them. And that's what's been happening. And the other one too is folks have been speculating on it because they're not paying commercial value for the property they're putting on. They're paying ag value. So there's a disparity. There's quite a difference. So literally you've got some good actors out there. Like really, there's some really good solid companies. And then there's a bunch of snake oil salesmen, prospectors running out, doing a bunch of things. And the, the, the regulations have not been, and the legislation has not been updated to deal with a bunch of this. That's why we're taking this pause to get the regulations and everything right, understand what the rules are. So when everybody goes out there, you're building these things in areas that's not going to have a detrimental effect to other things we're working on, like, you know, feeding people, trying to bring affordability in line. It's not a one or the other. Baseload is paramount to us. We have to have a steady baseload. Because we've allowed all of this other Wild West stuff to take place, we've put our grid at jeopardy. So taking coal offline at the times that we have, like that was your basic baseload right there, and I've been uh, against that from day one. So we made a political decision at the behest of logic and even economics to do that at this point. And then you've brought in gas-powered. Okay, great. And then you're going to tax the crap out of that. And then Gibo are, you know, seeing tower climbing protesting minister, I guess, um, wants to go even a step further in ideology. You can only do what they have in their areas. So seeing all of this was pretty wild. Like it was frustrating. Getting invited by the German government to go over to Germany through uh, the Conference of State Governments, I sit on an energy subcommittee with senators and representatives from the states from both political sides, also a um, MPP, that's like an MLA down in Ontario, and then Garth and I. So we end up getting an extra seat because there was a um, Manitoba election taking place and Saskatchewan was in session. So we put our hand up, grabbed this other seat. The whole idea of that was to bring us over to Germany to show us all the great things they're doing on their transition file. And by the end of the trip, we had everybody asking the same questions. Why are we doing this? What you're doing in Europe cannot be done in North America. Why would we take away all of our advantages? Um, so I'm waiting for you to start asking me questions. Otherwise, I'll start going into the whole trip and telling you what I saw. Well, <clears throat> the reason we're doing this, you know, b- beside everything else, like certain things just, you know, it's funny how the times just yeah. kind of, but I'm like, I sat and and I apologize, Garth. I don't want to uh, misstep on my wording because I, I'd never like quoting if it isn't written or you know you can just play the sound clip. But there was you texted me. We got to talk about Germany. It's oh, wild. Yeah. And then I went and sat in in our AGM of our area, and Garth got talking about it. Right? It was super cool to hear our MLA talk about. Uh, you know, <laughs> as soon as he said energy corridors, I'm like, 
oh my God, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because yeah. once again, when we first talked about it on here a couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe some people knew that, but I, I certainly never heard it. There was a lot of people who had never heard it. There was people at uh, Gar's AGM that hadn't heard it two years later. So you're like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And you could see everybody's ears perk up because it's like, we're going to build something? Jeez, in this country, we don't seem to build anything anymore. Yeah. But you come back to Germany and you see what's going on there and everything else. You text me, it's wild. Then Garth stands up there and, and not so many words, says something like, yeah, they wanted us to sign on to this this pact. And I'm going... We're going to do what now? And <laughs> I, I'm sure my brother was sitting right beside me. My brother Dust is sitting right there. And we're sitting there, and we both had the same look of like, what? And then Dust asked the question, we're not doing that, right? Like, this is, like, we're, you know, we can't do what they're doing. We would all be dead, you know? Well, but here's here's the thing. It comes back to the why. Why would we do this? So if I'm sitting at the table and we're having a few beverages and we're playing Risk or we're playing, you know, whatever war game you've got. You've got mm, the risk is a solid one. I like to think that right? people of my generation, I don't know, do kids play Risk anymore, I folks? Don't know, I, you can get Risk on an iPad, so maybe they do. Oh, maybe they do, yeah, Battleship or It's whatever, a lot but, quicker than it used to be. But it's a strategy game, right? So you're looking at the resources and the, and the things you have at your disposal. So now there's a couple ways of, of winning that game. Um, you can march your armies across the board and you can do that, or you can do it by making alliances. And how do you make alliances? Typically that's politics. So how are you making these political alliances? So why would I do this? Why would I switch to something that is necessarily untested, but I'm looking for my security? So if the security is based on having energy and having energy at my disposal whenever I need it, not being dependent on trade alliances or politics that's diverse, and we don't want to be marching armies across Europe again. Oh, wait a sec. So we don't want to be having that happening. Then how do I start to do this? Well, let's get the little laser pointer out and let's get the cats running around and let's start looking at this. Do you think that Germany was running out of energy just a couple of years ago? Like th this is their, their history. Like you've seen major wars and conflicts fought over this. So you've had these trade alliances that get fragile over time because of the politics and everything else. Germany's resurgence in their, their energy and their growth um, from the 90s was based on having cheap gas from Russia. I mean, Trump was over there pointing fingers a number of years ago and everybody thought he was a loudmouth. He told them, like, you're too dependent. This is going to grenade on you. This is bad. Whatever reason, whether it's forecasting or more politics and behind the scene, that's taking place. So if I'm looking at it from a risk perspective, you have all the advantages on the board on your side. How do I change you to get you to walk away from those advantages to make you at the same level as I am? I don't know, maybe the climate might be a crisis. You could get some little pigtailed girl from Sweden to come over and freak everybody about. So again, what's what's the friendliest thing? I'm going to get you positioned to do something uh, that puts me at a less disadvantage again. I'm going to try to keep leveling the plane. And these are, these are trading partners. These are friends of ours. But you're still within those friends. You're not going to disproportionately take yourself from the third largest economy and drop yourself down to the 10th or 12th, are you? So you have to try to level the playing field. So that's kind of laying it out there on the, on the background. Now in North America, we have all the advantages. We have all the minerals and the assets there, everything that we have. We've got a big area. Like, and the other one that was pretty wild to realize is that Germany's not an old country. It's a new country. It's only 30 years old. Right? Like, until we actually went there and what? you... Yeah. Well, think about the concept and, and I know it's bonkers and I had to get my head around it too. And it's something I came up with. So it's a little out of left field, but the, the context of sitting there when the wall came down, it was East and West Germany. Those were two countries. 
literally after World War II and the Cold War and everything. So those were literally two countries. Do they think of it like that, though? Yeah. They, li- they literally think that there are new countries from the wall coming down? Yeah. So, so think of the concept of this. As soon as, and when you're sitting in, in the, the Reichstag and you're going through this in their new parliament, they have new parliamentary rules. They have a new seating arrangement. They have a new voting class. They have, everything is different from what they had before. When the wall came down, East and West joined each other again. That's your new country. This is the first generation that they've had in the last 30 years that the kids refer to themselves as Germans, not East German and West German. They're a brand new country. And Germany has gone through this in their history. If you, if, and going through one of the war museums in Dresden that we managed to trip around and took a Sunday to do before we came back home, it, it, it was so pervasive to me. Like since the 1300s, you've seen these changes back and forth. Napoleon had part of it, and then the Prussians had part of it, and then you had back and forth in the churning. You had literally feudal states right up until the point of the 1800s. So we think Canada's a young country. Germany's younger than us. When you look at these changes, these geopolitical changes and political changes that have taken place, so think of it that way. Like once you get that in your head around that, then things start to make sense. So you've got this new generations that's a bunch of 30-somethings that some of the old folks are leading them down like this path, and it's all based on their heart and principles and minds. They haven't seen these conflicts before. They've 30 years have actually been actually pretty decent. So now you've got this whole country, this whole massive economy that's dependent on that. And that's where the politics creep in. I literally had a chance to sit beside for half an hour at this one supper with the leader of the Green Party in Germany. And Germany's a coalition party. They call them the traffic-like party right now. You've got the Greens, the Yellows, and the Reds. The yellow guy actually took us around. Real nice guy, Michael Cruz is his name, took us around. I'm going to stop you for one second. Sure. Is their political parties actually called Green, Reds, and Yellows? No, that's their colors. It's just the colors. It's their colors. Okay. Or, you know, so over there they call themselves the traffic-like government right now because political yeah, changes, right? Yeah, yeah. Their coalition okay. governments always. So when Michael's taking us around walking through and we're asking him how, how fragile and how polarized some of the opinions are, and, and good guy. And he's saying, yeah, there are some things that we can't agree to, but we have to you know, kind of go along with this. Okay. Sitting with the, the lady, the leader, literally the leader of the Green Party, we're sitting right beside each other and a couple of folks across the table and we're talking back and forth. And I'm thinking this is a phenomenal opportunity. Like I'm meeting a federal leader of Germany. Like this is pretty cool having the conversation on our hydrogen file. Like, here's all the things we've done with our hydrogen roadmap. Oh, yeah, but you're using blue hydrogen. Well, yeah, like, we've been using it in process for the last 25, 30 years. Well, you're not carbon pricing. Oh, no, we've actually done that for the last 20 years on our industries. We've always been doing that. Well, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. She knew everybody that was from Rachel Notley all the way through a number of their uh, members to the Trudeau group but didn't know any of us. So that was the first thing that jumped off the page, and I didn't bring up any of that politics, not knowing who she knew. The second side of it was she kept telling us how we had to do wind and solar, how nothing was good unless you did wind and solar. And finally, when I'm explaining to her, I said, you know, and this is half an hour into it, and uh, and they also talked about our environment plan and, and what was going on, and, and we have some really good stuff to tell. Like, we've got an integrated environment plan that includes all the industries of how we meet, reach our goals and objectives. That hadn't been done in 15 years. We've, we've done that as a government. That's all out there. It's all sitting out for people to use. So when you start hitting all these mainstream items, and then finally it's to the point that that's not even good enough, and she won't listen that her climate is different than ours. Like, they're literally in Berlin. It's like, I don't know, Vancouver. So all of these elements don't work. And finally I said to her, I said, with all respect, to come to Germany, it took me seven and a half hours to fly here, four and a half hours to get out of my own country, and we were taking the short route, another hour over top of Greenland, 
couple hours over top of the, uh, the uh, Atlantic. And then it was really easy and fast to get there. I said, your country is half the size of my province. I have four and a half million people. You have 85 million people. I'm sitting on the fourth largest known oil reserves on the planet that's producing. I'm sitting on 223 trillion cubic feet of gas. Of the coal that you have, you guys have lignite. We wouldn't even bother mining it. We have the hard coal that you keep talking about, the stuff that's hundreds and hundreds of dollars a ton, plus all the metallurgical coal. And in our country, we sit on about 80% of that. I produce over 70% of the beef in my entire country comes from, from our area. I have all this fresh water. I said, as far as our major polluters, they're forest fires. And we just burnt off the size of Switzerland and I still have 62% of my forest left. So quite frankly, with all these things at our disposal, do you think we'd be having the same conversation if Germany had these assets? And she was gobsmacked. It just took away the, the varnish and the veneer of everything else. That's really where it comes down to is what assets do we have? When I went over and spoke to, to Michael it all, afterwards. It, it also, if I may. And we're safe. Is is competency, you know, I hate the word competency because, you know, you, you had to take all these competent checks to be a competent worker and all this. But, like, when I, when I listen to you talk, I'm like, it takes a person in, in the position of being a politician who can say that, who can confidently be like, uh, these things, you know, like, I mean, you know, how many other people would have sat there and been like, hmm, yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm, yeah, well, well, we'll think about it. You know, I don't know. Doesn't, a, doesn't want to make a point or doesn't know how to make the point. Well, and, and there's part of us being on the global stage. So even with our own consulate, when they're talking about hydrogen and we can produce all hydrogen, that was the other point I made. I said, only second to Russia in the world. That's us for the largest amount. We produce the most hydrogen in our country. We've been doing it for years. It's a byproduct for us. So tell us how much you need. We'll get it to you. And that's what we should be talking about. We'll help you through your energy transition. But right now... You're, you're pooched, you know, and again, she was apologetic for having to get gas. She was apologetic almost for, for having to use coal. And she goes, well, how was that received in Canada? We don't care. Like, honestly, it's not well, a blip on the radar. <laughs> their, their consumers are conditioned. Some people care, well, but very, very. As a big thing, did you see big riots in the street because Germany had to burn coal again? No. Like, no. And they're not going to shut theirs in no, until 2030. Like, look at where we live, like Shane, where we live. I mean, right now it was plus 12 the other day. I was like, oh my, is this November? You know, because what's, because what's coming is minus 40. Yeah, and when it turns to minus 40, nobody cares. Well, it's not unheard of. In my lifetime, I remember day before Christmas out in t-shirts fencing <clears throat> with my dad. Let me be very clear. I'm not putting it out there because I think climate change is going to yeah. kill us and warm the planet. And we're all going to boil like, you know, it's like, no, we're having a great, a great winter right now. Yeah. Anytime you get into November and you... Even if it was minus 10, but there's no snow, it's like, we're winning. Anything we're winning. past and Halloween, then you don't have to have the kids in snowsuits as a bonus. That's right, it's a bonus. So yeah. right now we're in bonus time. And yeah. I'm just hoping bonus time goes to Christmas. And the day before Christmas, we get a foot of snow and you go, oh, we get a white Christmas. Because yeah. it was only like, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, 15, I don't know, maybe it's longer than that now. Is it 15 years ago? We had a brown Christmas, right? Like yeah. we rode on quads, riding around in sweatshirt. It was unreal. And you go like, no, this isn't, unusual i mean in in the in the grand scheme of things i would say it's a little unusual but like over the course of 10 years you probably get one year like this where it's like you know you get a late a late snowfall and you're like meh farmers are going we could use some snow though because we need the moisture and that's in our lifetime not over ten thousand years yeah well i know to me let's not get too in the weeds of all this climate jargon it's like but so having laid all those things out 
mic drop, speak to Michael and go back over. And I shook his hand a second time. I said, I understand now how fragile your, your coalition is. And he goes, they want to push industry out of Germany too. Like they're, they don't want to stop. So there's the, the balancing act that they're playing on the political side, on the technical side. Um, so we spoke to a number of levels, including industry. So we spoke to the feds, the federal governments and their departments. Um, and then they walked us through their plan of how they're going to transition and, and move a ton over to EV, how they're going to have more um, cars on the road to EV. They're going to start moving a um, bunch more over to public transit, like doubling their public transit than, than what they have now. They're talking about how many um, megawatts they have to save, how you'll have to change consumer behaviors of how to how to do that. And they're literally, the social engineering is happening to try to do that. To so try and get people to go, switch over to EVs and everything full, else. Full well. And then they're yeah. disclosing that to us, that here's, here's how you make this model work. And when I asked some basic technical things, and God bless this young engineer that was over there, she was truthful. The politician in the room was wild because they keep looking to the younger generations around them to answer the technical questions, which was interesting. So wasn't as if it was the other way leading and it's almost as if these are the ones. And, and when you look, that's where the, the power dynamic was in that room at that time. That technical lady, and I kept pushing this, this female engineer, I said, what's your probability in this? Like, how is this going to work out? Are you meeting your targets? And finally she says, no, we're not. And we don't know that we will, but because of these other elements, we think we're still okay. Well, the politicians, and again, we're sitting with a bunch of Dems from Democrats, um, from the states, their their jaws are hitting the table. They're like, well, what do you mean you're not making your objectives? And then even the group that was bringing us there. So now we're having a technical conversation, not a political conversation. They're not going to hit their objectives. And, and when you mean objectives, what do you mean? Their objectives of the targets of reduction in power consumption, the objectives of uh, the fleet production of how many EV vehicles they would have, um, literally the, the, the model they're coming up with. But to them, they, I mean, they're still trying to tracking towards a target and timeline. So that was interesting. Then we go into, um, um, you know, a, a state meeting with the State Department in the U.S., and then it was a bunch of business folks together talking about these targets and objectives, how we've already got these pacts and these agreements that are signed and how that's kind of working out, and, and it's all good. Um, because, again, the Transatlantic Bridge uh, Corporation was put together after World War II, inclusive of the Marshall Plan, to bring everybody back online, and this has been working in the background for years. So it, it, it works. The model works. But the key thing to, to get from the U.S. conversation that was coming out was we have to look at resilience and adaptability. Again, under this whole green narrative, but resilience and adaptability. So if we can get people thinking that way and resilience and adaptability, technically you can start to work towards that pathway. And then the other interesting part was the hydrogen equation. So we go over to our own consulate, our own consulate that's representing Canada, specifically Alberta, didn't know our file. They knew the highlights of it, but when someone leans into me and goes, can you really produce hydrogen by 2025? And I go, yeah, we've been doing it for 30 years. How much do you need? Well, you can't get it to us. Don't tell me that. Tell me how much you need and I'll figure out how to get it to you because that's what we do. And, you know, tongue in cheek, the other thing I did is I took around a bunch of little Alberta flags and everywhere I went, I dropped Alberta flags on the table. I had people taking pictures of the Alberta flag and explaining who we are, Texas North, talking about the resources and the elements, and they came away with a different perspective. So now we go over to Tyson Krupp. Like, this was wild. So Tyson Krupp's is a massive organization. If you ever jumped in an elevator, look at the name on the door. Like it's probably a Tyson Krupp elevator. Um, steel productions, uh, engineering model solutions, like tons of stuff. And on the steel side, they make some um, high-quality steel, both for military applications and regular run-of-the-mill road stuff. Because of policy, 
um, they're being forced at them, and they have to bring in all the, the metallurgical coal. They have to import all that. They don't have it. All they have is lignite there, which is brown coal, which is 50 to 70% moisture. Like, it's not the stuff we have. So they have to import all this. They're going from a coking furnace, of which takes your raw ore at the top. You throw in um, high-grade coal, basically bring it up to temp. You make everything molten. And also from that, you're also picking up... Um, carbon properties from the coal that you're putting in this. So it makes really good steel. Known process, awesome. The new process that is yet to be tested that they came up with is going to use a hydrogen furnace and then it's going to have to use electrodes, electricity, because the hydrogen furnace does not produce enough temperature to bring it up to temp. It only brings up to a plastic state where you need it to a molten state. And then you're going to use electricity to do that. Now you have to understand they're parked, they're nukes. They're not taking nuclear electricity. So it's, it's not that, it, you know, so now you're getting your electricity either from burning lignite coal or ideally, again, with a green party lady, you're going to get that from doing electrolysis from windmills and from solar panels on fresh water. There's a fresh water thing, right? Like we need it for crops and we need it to drink, but they're going to start staking and depleting fresh water supply to produce hydrogen and to use the green energy to do that. And I'm kind of disruptive, like the, the not attention deficit, but when I look at something that's on the wall and I'm looking at literally this furnace, they're not telling me all this. I'm looking at it and I'm going, hold on a sec. And I'm interrupting this chief financial officer or chief you know, executive from their company. I'm going, can you stop for a sec? You know, you're not supposed to interrupt a, a presentation. I'm going, is this accurate? Like, is this what you're doing? Have you tested this model on AutoWork? Have you done one? No. So this is a brand new plant. Yeah. Is this accurate in how you're looking at your energy? Yeah. I said, you're going to need 15 times more energy than you need or are using right now. And the politicians, again, around the table, their jaws are almost hitting the table. Well, I'm that's because it, you're... you're we, <clears throat> the thing that's so fascinating about you, Shane, people can love or hate you. doesn't matter, right? People can attack you. They can love you. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like when I bring you on and bring on any politician, you're going to get you're going to yeah. get full spectrum. But the interesting thing is your background... Right? So you look at these problems and you have industry in your blood, right? You go, well, this doesn't make any sense. I just had on Linda Blade. Okay. Okay. Linda Blade uh, shocked me. It was, uh, she wrote a book on how trans females are ruining not just female sports, but all sports. And her background is she was a, a phenomenal track athlete back in the 80s. Uh, saw the doping scandal of Ben Johnson and, yep. and, and and on and on and on. Has worked with elite athletes, male and female, for 30 years. And then, you know, she sees all these um, trans female, trans women, trans females, going into the women's sports and everything. And she's just going like, this, this doesn't make any sense. So she wrote a book on it. And then she sat in your chair like a week ago. And she walks in, I've read her book, and the book's good. And it just floored me. No different than Regina Watteel. There are people sitting in our country right now, or heck, in our province, that have such a wealth of knowledge specific to some of the problems that have been created that don't get enough airtime to be like, this is why this doesn't make sense. And you're sitting in a room where 99% of the people don't even know the question. They're just like, yeah, it's just another presentation. Oh, this is great. They're going to be all green. It's going to be all green. It's great. Yeah. And you're a guy with the background to go, Wait a second. This doesn't make any sense. No, because again, the the day before, we're hearing about the social engineering. We're hearing about trying to change everything over, how we have to use less energy. And your major industry players, you're forcing them to make a non-competitive product 
that's 15 times at least, at least 15 times more energy equivalents than it is one right now. So it doesn't reconcile. And then when I asked them, and again, I brought it back and said, who's making you do this? Well, we have to, but why? Government policy, because we have to fight climate change. So they're being forced in these these areas to come up with technical solutions. And I go, how does this work with your cost competitiveness? And now Garth is jumping in and the other gent who was a Republican from uh, the States, he jumps in and starts asking questions. Where is your market now? He flips two slides ahead. He already shows that China and India are eating their lunch. If you're going to make your product 10 to 15 times at least more expensive. More expensive. And I'm going, how does this work? Like, why am I compelled to buy from you? I said, can, you know, two things. Can you move to our jurisdiction? We're sitting in this. Well, it depends if we're part of the same group or not. What group is that? Well, and this is where we heard about COP28. What we're going to introduce, what we would like to introduce is a climate club. So then everyone agrees to what energy is, what works within the climate club. The climate club is a buyer's club. You have to negate your values. You come up with what your definitions of energy are. So basically you hamstring North America. You bring it up to the same equivalency because over there it's 40 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity right now. We're paying 12. So you bring everything up, how many more times expensive, whomever comes on with that model within the club is only trading with each other. There's your globalization 2.0. Everybody else that's outside of the circles trading with themselves at a different economy. So why am I doing that again? When we go over is to can Canada is part of it because we have feds. So unless the provincial folks show up and start making agreements at the state levels and representing ourselves, the Fed story isn't being represented to the feds of Germany either. So just so I'm clear, I, I, I want to make sure I'm getting, because this is, this is, the federal government is probably going, that's a great idea. We should totally do this. We should totally sign on to agreement with you. We should totally get our values in line and have a climate club. Gee, that sounds like fancy pants socks idea and his, um, you know, group of, like that sounds like their own idea. Like it sounds yeah. like they're all speaking it's, it's the same language. Their, it's not their idea. And they're not smart enough to have it be in their sure, idea. Sure, sure. But fair enough. But they, they would talk that language is oh, all yeah. I'm saying. And what you're saying is, as a province, you're seeing it when you go out to Germany. You're seeing yeah. what they're talking about. You're seeing the things they're trying to align so that we all go the same. And what you're saying is, as a province of Alberta, and maybe as you would put it, Northwest, but certainly as Alberta, because whether it's Alberta or Saskatchewan, somebody's got to lead the way of being like, we're a province. We don't, we are not beholden to everything the federal government does. And we can sign agreements with you, create this energy corridor and, you know, Ottawa can do what it wants, but we're going to do what yep. we need to do to protect not only your constituents, but the province of Alberta, which will in fact. Right, it's, it's North America. It's, it's U.S. and Canada. Like we're we're being led down these paths because you've got people that are easily influenced. Again, my comment with the little yeah, yeah, light yeah. beam, these are your politicians that are swallowing this policy. It's not Gibo dreaming this up. Gibo is just drinking the Kool-Aid and he's doing what he's told. He's following this because he actually believes it. That's the scary part. So when Tyson Krupp is doing this and they say, we have to like, and what happens if you don't? Well, we have to. And then if you say, well, you ask about others that are questioning this, or oh, they're climate deniers. They immediately close it off. It's like, you know, vaccine deniers. It's like the Freedom Convoy guys that fly a Canada flag and are all of a sudden protesters because you throw national interest. There's a ton of things that are at play here. And knowing where we're at in the province of working with our other provinces and working with the states and the energy producing groups and everything else, I thought we were on the right track. Like I was really sure we we're on the right track. After being there, I'm 100% sure we're on the right track. 
And this is where we have to represent ourselves. Now, we jumped over to another group, and it was North Rhine-Westphalia, which is like the Alberta, Germany. These guys are awesome. Um, they're the energy hub, the tech hub, um, industry hub. They're very innovative. Uh, we can sign, honestly, MLUs with these guys until the cows come home. We'll figure out the technical issues together. Um, you know, we've got three or four universities, two big ones, arguably, that kind of on that side, they have 70. We've got, you know, a couple technical colleges. They have 116. Like, they're phenomenal. And this is where the coal mining takes place in their area. So asking them the probability of make this happen, because they're a state government again. They're they're like us, provincial, you know, talking to a state. And again, they're showing me where their transition plan is going. And, and I'm going, interjecting, and what is your probability of failure? Like, how much how much risk are you guys taking on with this? Because I'm, I'm not seeing the numbers. Like, this is... And then the the lady, she flips to the, to the third screen and she kind of goes 30%, 30% probability of failure that you're not going to have. And I, I'm tongue in cheek again. I said, so 30% probability of failure of, of not meeting their goals and objectives for the transition plan. They don't have the technical issues solved out. They don't have the energy solved. They, they, they have a 30% risk failure of improbability right now of, of reaching the objectives. Meanwhile, on top of all that, the the price of everything has gone through the roof yeah. because what they're doing costs way more. Correct. So when I said 30% failure, this is where you're at. I said, in, in my world, in a boardroom, you bring me a 30% failure, you're not coming in the room. Like I'm, I'm dealing on yeah, like, micro percentages to typically make something work. Like you, you get it nailed down. It's so almost said, flipping a coin, you know? Well, it, no, it's, it's worse than that. It's honestly worse than that. And I put it in context. I'm going to take this 200 kilometer an hour train back from Essen back to Berlin. You're telling me there's a 30% chance of failure that I'll either derail or die on the way there. Do you want to buy that ticket and sit on the train seat next to me with a 30% chance? I only have 70% chance of making that alive. And when you ask them, well, who's figuring this out? Someone. Well, we'll figure out the technical issues. Well, why are you doing this? Because we have to. Well, what happens if the public doesn't go along with us? Well, we'll make the, the policy pervasive so that they, they're punished until they have to. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. So there's the spooky part. Um, Germany's culture accepts this way easier than we do. We're a little bit bucky out here. There was one... Isn't that funny to say? Because for a while, we accepted pretty much everything. We, you we know. did. We're the calm, quiet Canadians. And, yeah. you know, honestly, right now, you compare us against the, the U.S., uh, pff, I... We're, we're going along with this because we're the caring, compassionate Canadians that are becoming socialist and we don't realize it. So those oh, are I the think I, th I have to interject that. <laughs> I think we realize it. Yeah. I think <clears throat> the more I talk to people, the more you just realize we've been in like socialist state, a version of communism, whatever it is, that has been freer than any other version of it. Yeah, and, and, and we're we're living it right and now, and that's in Saskatchewan and Alberta, Alberta which is the two. We're the we're the outliers. Thank you. So the the thing that was pervasive with us being there and asking these questions and having those conversations, and they're good folks. Like that, I mean, honestly, don't get me wrong; they're not bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're good people. But what they're doing to come up with solutions for their area region does not have to be applied to ours. And again, coming back to that point I made with that green leader, I'm sitting over, you know. 1,500 years of secure energy? Why would I do this? I, I, the biggest thing I have to do is fight forest fires, so prevent how many forest fires take place. And then immediately they jump, well, that's the climate. No, that's people starting fires in a dry year. I can control people, because when you looked at what happened on the COVID chart, same climatic conditions, the lowest frequency we've had in 20 years is when everyone was sitting at home, like you were saying, waiting for the next shoe to drop. That was our lowest fire season in 20 years. 
nothing climatically changed. Everything that we're looking at, there's a small margin were caused by Mother Nature. Everything was man-made. I can deal with man-made stuff. But the idea of taking cash, throwing it out the window to change the weather, that doesn't work. If you're looking at resilience and adaptability and building that back in your supply chains and getting these regions to work and not getting hung up on on the form of energy, if I'm looking at a problem, solve you the always, problem. You always step into this room, you always sell me this this little bit of glimmer of hope, you know? Like oh, I'm, there's I'm, lots of hope. I'm batting down the hatches and, you know, and, and um, uh, the guy just before he occurred to Stone, you know, he's a... Uh, um, uh, well, he was the urban farmer, but I, I don't know. I call him a prepper, right? Like he, yep. you know, he's looking at the next 10 years going, it's going to get worse. Like it's not going to get better. And you come in here and you always sell me on a little bit of like, it's going to get better. Are you saying it's going to get better? Or are you looking at it going, Ooh, table your expectations because it's going to get worse. Yeah. Well, but it there's depends some... what your version of is, is. So in my perspective, um, I believe and, and I have to say this, like I have to believe that because enough people are working together and realizing what they're going to be sold on here, that they've been sold a bad bill of goods, that that's where it comes into. So reason being, when we were talking about economic corridors before, this is prior to the invasion of Russia, we were talking about the Northwest Passage, about being the first time in 10,000 years we can actually navigate that. Talked about uh, 2009 uh, Russia pulls out the Yama Peninsula and all of a sudden starts supplying all this gas. 2014, China declares themselves an Arctic nation. Pick a portion of the world that they're going to be the Arctic nation in. Uh, then we had some Chinese weather balloons take place. We had Russia invade Ukraine. You had the gas supply cut off to Germany. And then on August 5th of this year, we had a joint naval exercise of uh, China and Russia off of the coast of Alaska. People are paying attention now. China has the large majority of all the rare earth elements that we have. If you're looking at all the batteries and everything else they need, that's them. Even though Japan has 10% of the market, they still get their base elements from China. If you're looking at the nuclear industry, because Russia had a cheap supply of a bunch of tech and also for uh, enrichment materials, we bought into that. 35% of our supply chain comes from Russia. The only thing that's not being sanctioned right now, by the way. However, when you look at the supply chain, there's fragility in the supply chain. We can rebuild it, put it back together. If I'm looking at that northern part of, of uh, Saskatchewan, two square miles, two different independent mines, they're running at partial productions right now. They literally can supply U.S. with 97% of their perceivable nuclear energy for a number of years, hundreds of years. We have everything at our disposal. The question is, why in the hell are we not developing our own stuff? Why is it taking us so long to permanent? And why are we falling into a bracket of what energy is being defined by people over in the Atlantic that don't have our resources? So the hope is, and I saw it right at Penmar this weekend by being on the stage for three hours on three different independent talks, we have the solutions to it. I need to know the timelines. And the spooky part on this is talking to the guy that's running the nuclear side of it, the SAS power, the energy side, and also the guy that's laying out the rare earth elements because Saskatchewan's doing some phenomenal work on their vertical stack of how they um, mine this, extract it, produce it, and everything else. The critical element, if you take away two things, and here's why I kept pushing them and unfairly to them, but I'm pushing them on this because as a politician, I need to know this so I can raise the alarm and put it in a way that other people can understand the severity and the consequences of us heading down this path. If Russia was to pull the pin on their enriched materials, we've got two years. That's only how much we have sitting right now in each one of those facilities. They've got two years of a built-up supply or the lights go off on the nuclear facilities. That's kind of a spooky thought, right? Not for us, but down there, they get a lot of power from there and Ontario does as well. 
the rare earth elements because we're driving towards this whole EV type thing that's going to grenade. Like, so all the supply. <laughs> it's going to grenade. <laughs> so all the supply that they're looking for, if you're looking for the demand on that side of it, that's what's driving most of this. If I looked at two basic elements for the, for the rare earth elements and the critical elements, there comes down to two things, feeding people and fighting for people. I have to be able to protect them and I have to be able to feed them. If we take that other draw and demand out of the supply line, within five years, we could have our supply line lined up. That's only five years. But when you're pushing me to 2035 and all this other BS that they're doing, and it takes me 20 years to develop a mine, it takes me 17 years to build a flipping power line, good luck. Like the, the math doesn't add up. So if we're talking realism, we need to find a pathway, economic corridor, within those areas of where we're establishing where those mineral assets are, we're looking at how we move the energy, what types of energy we're doing, we're looking at the supply chain and logistics, and you apply a special rule within that boundary that all of the regulatory approvals and everything get fast-tracked within there because we already know what we need to do to approve it. Fire up the bureaucracy and say what an, a yes looks like. Industry then can invest. Uh, they can actually build the stuff, and the financial institutions know that this is a full deal. And using Germany as an example, when Canada said there was no business model, they went to Qatar, they got their energy that they needed, and they built their stuff within 130 days. That was a green environment and economics minister that made that call because it was a national state of interest. The world isn't waiting for us to catch up. We've got to figure this stuff out. We've got to work with our American partners. We've got to work with our trading partners that are there that we need it, and we've got to get it done. And I love to sell Germany as much gas as they want, as much hydrogen as they want, as much synthetic uh, graphite, uh, mineral assets. We'll do all that, and we'll ramp things up again. And again, we have to, Sean, come back to being Canadians rather than Canadians. Get this stuff done, get our shit together, and get in the game and make it happen. I mean, I just go, there's one Shane Getson. How, how, uh... <sighs> I'm replicating myself. Uh, are you? Yeah, so in the short timeline, again... Went from having a conversation to having literally economic corridors etched in a ministry's wall. We have people now at these conferences that are running with this same concept. I am literally have been asked to take over the transportation side of this one organization. This is how we do it. And a bunch of the, the senators from down south are asking me for speaking notes. How, how do we do this? Like, you're talking about this. Well, we got to start speaking from the same song sheet. Those other fellows on the other side... They're conditioned to do it, and they've been speaking this way for years. It's up to us now to stop scrapping over the pieces, look at this thing, and not let somebody else define what energy is. In energy in North America, nuclear is clean. Wind power is clean. Hydroelectric is clean. Natural gas is clean. Oil is clean. Carbon capture and storage, that's how we play the narrative with a bunch of these folks. If it's carbon is the issue and I can solve the technical issue with carbon, they'll let me solve it. But it's never been the issue. When I hear intonations from the CBC and everyone else, and they're talking about this whole dismantle the petroleum industry because it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's the forms of carbon. They've been brainwashed. It's absolutely bonkers. One of these young young guys sitting over there that was all fired up, and he had um, a hairdo like Sideshow Bob, so it was tough to take him serious to start off with, but he's this young 30-something-year-old think tank guy talking about how they're going to make clean jet fuel, green jet fuel. I'm going, okay, well, this is getting interesting because I know what our guys are doing at the U of A. I know that they're working with Forge. I know they're looking at biodigesters. I know they're doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes using our industry and what we've done. And we're coming up with some pretty clean options here. And he says, we're going to take hydrogen. That's green hydrogen. Okay. So again, that definition of taking fresh water, wasting it to make hydrogen through electrolysis, through that side. And then we're going to take carbon. 
Okay, we're going to combine it <laughs> and we're going to make a hydrocarbon. And I'm going, or you can't lose 30% of your energy equivalency and you can just take a hydrocarbon that oozes out of the ground, put it in a nice little tower, a bubble tower, and crack it off in the top and I can still feed the world. So all you're doing is making the same element I have at my disposal, but taking fresh water to do it. And it's like blank, blank. Like they've literally lost it in that regard. You've got a bunch of folks that haven't executed before, that don't have kids, that haven't had to care for people, that haven't had to do these things. They're think thinking that, this stuff up in the dark. It's wild. Do you think the uh, not having kids is a big part of it? Yeah. Yeah, you take any person. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people have kids and don't give a crap about their kids and they're bad parents. Take people who actually care about it and have the responsibility. That, that makes things real. When you have to... Um, put yourself second or third or fourth or fifth to make sure that those little people you're bringing into the world have a future and then they're, they don't have a worry in the world and you're taking all the heat and doing it, that changes your perspective in a hurry. If it was just a single guy here running around, yeah, whatever, I wouldn't give a second thought to what I was doing in a lot of things. Knowing running that gamut, that's part of it. And the other one is <laughs> having to stay up all night to, and with the pressure of making something work. These folks don't know where their stuff comes from. They're just dreaming it up of how they're going to do it. Technically, they can't solve the problems, but somebody else is going to do it because they've never had to do it themselves. That's what spooked me. Who's somebody? And when you ask them who's going to pay for this cost difference, the government. The government's going to pay it. Yeah, who's the government? Blank, blank. You're never going to be able to save up enough for your home. Well, I rent. And then Garth kind of put it to him. Somebody owns the place you're renting. Who's that? Blank, blank. It, it, was, it was absolutely wild. It was neat to see this. And then at the end of the trip, I'm asking. Un unnerving. Uh, yeah, it was, it was wild, right? Like you're in, in the. I understand now why you're like, we got to talk about. Trip. Oh, we're going to talk about it. Because again, to me, that's the crystal ball of where this is going. If we keep the, the intonations of what we're doing, that's the path we're going down. Like, come on, folks, we don't need to do that. There's not a gun being held to my head that says we have to do this. Lancey Meadows, um, National Historic Park, where the Vikings first landed in North America, northern tip of Newfoundland. First time I go out there and see this, because, you know, Viking heritage, you know, Norwegian heritage, our country's heritage, really cool to go see. And I'm looking out there, and they called it Markland back in the day. So Markland was basically big timber. And I'm looking out at the tundra, and I'm looking at the guy going, what gives here? Like, what, did the Vikings log all of this area off? And he goes, well, no. He says, it used to be about seven degrees warmer a thousand years ago. Oh. So the plant life has changed. So when we're running around for all these reasons, I come back to the why. Why are we doing this? If you give industry the challenge, if you say we have to go from point A to point B, have a good reason, give them the timelines to do it, give them the, the ability to solve the technical challenges, they'll do it. But when I hear by others and nobody knows whose others are, so I'm sitting there with this guy at the end and he was kind of the one from the Sadelphi group leading us around. And, um, and I'll tell you one more thing too, which was pretty wild. But leading us around and they're always by these others. And I'm going, who the hell's the others? Like, is somebody tracking this in the government and the federal government of who's working all these technical challenges? And now we're getting to know each other. And he kind of, you know, says, well, he says, uh, I had asked that once too. I'm like, well, what'd you get? He says, well, I asked the government. And the government went back in. And a couple weeks later, they came back and they said it was us. So he says, I'm going to start getting a spreadsheet now and trying to track who's working on these issues. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, you're, you're, all I can think of is this is my, I said this before we started and I label it not as an individual, but as politicians. One of the things that doesn't matter the level <clears throat> municipal all the way up, well, that's a provincial matter 
or that's a federal matter. And everybody takes it kind of, that's kind of the mentality you're talking about. It's like, well, somebody else is going to figure this out. The, the, when the you, think when tanks you, make a, a bazillion dollars coming up with ideas. It doesn't mean it has to be a good idea. It's up to the politicians and the policymakers to vet those ideas. But if they're not vetted or if they don't have the technical ability or if they're being silenced because there's another thing, this thing falls apart. And that's what we're seeing. Every time you test the logic and look at fancy socks there with doing the same thing in the heating oil. Take a snow globe. Okay, we're on the same planet. We're all in this together. I shake the snow globe, those things move around. So why is it when I burn diesel fuel on the East Coast, it's not as impactful to the snow globe as me burning natural gas out here in the middle of the prairies? It doesn't make sense. It was never about the climate, ever. And there is the hypocrisy. They're not even hiding it anymore. That's where people are hopefully saying enough. And it's enough to, for all of us, the, the pendulum swinging, be bold about it. A bunch of people have been keeping their heads down for years. Now, step up, start pushing, and get out there. And everything's about timing. So again, coming back to some of the criticisms in the first end, yeah, there's a time and a place to have this. Now, knowing full well my own personal story, seeing what was in place, finding a solution to come up with, with problems, because a lot of folks tell you about the problems, they don't have a solution. Here's a way out of it. Here's what we have to do. Don't let them get boxed in and let's keep working together. A ton of the stuff you won't see it happening on the surface. You'll see a ton of us guys working behind the scenes and the, the fruits of our label, labors will come out. If this thing works right, it'll come out about five, 10 years down the road because we would have missed eating the bullet that's being already laid out for us. Hmm. That's, um, well, a, t a ton of people, rightfully so, can't get past a lot of different issues, COVID being a very big yep. one, right? Because obviously there's still people that are reeling from that. Lost their businesses. There's, there's people running uh, from paraly uh, para yeah. para I mean, uh, I, what I was going to say is paralyzed, but I was thinking of Drew Weatherhead's sister. And what I what I meant was um, vaccine injured, mm -hmm. um, still having like, like I, I don't have to go on the list. People have been listening and they've, they've heard the stories, yep. right? And they're going, yeah, we got this one wrong, big. And, when, and uh, forgive me, what you're saying, I think, you know, as we sit here and we've been talking for a while, is there's another bullet coming, and if we don't get it right, it's going to get way worse. Am I, I wrong on, on I, that? I think that was the real bullet all along. Is the energy transition of crippling the economy, like, driving us into... Yeah, it's a, it's a globalization 2.0. Like, again, when it comes down to it, whether you don't like it or not, it doesn't matter. You might not like cold weather, but it's coming. You either got a choice to put on a a jacket, either got a choice to move all the way out of it or sit there in the parking lot, yell and scream and, and freeze to death, like figure it out. So you might not like it, but it's well, already happening. Well, this is, this is my thought, you know, just on this side with the CRTC saying we're, we, you know, mm -hmm. we want everybody to register and we're, you know, and, and they put it out in a nice way that, you know, everyone's going 10 million, nobody makes 10 million. It's like, well, actually that's, that's not true. There are people who make 10 yeah. million and they pretty much allow all of you to hear us have our conversations and you go, well, isn't that very, very smart, very, <laughs> very interesting little yeah. ploy there. And, uh, and you go, but what can, you know, I sit here, what, what can you do? It's like, well, you got to start moving because as you would say, winter's coming and whether it happens yep. on November 28th or it happens six months after that, yep. it's coming. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, ad adapt and overcome. So you have to be resilient about it. You know, I think Darwin had a great quote, and I'm going to mess it up, but it's not the strongest or the smartest of the species. It's the ones that are the most uh, able to adapt to survive. 
So there's enough of us that have to see it. You can change the weather to a degree, but you have to understand what's coming for you. And this has been in the making for a long time. So again, there's things that we can do. Acknowledge the things that you can and accept the things you can't. So we can do what we're doing now for the time we have. The other side isn't stopping. They've been doing this for a number of years, and it's not just on one file. And again, a lot of us can only work on certain things that we're aware of. The, the challenge is to make sure that people of the same heart and intent get on the areas of their levels of expertise and deal with it. And don't tear down the other person because he's not working on the file that you're an expert in. Maybe understand they're looking at another portion of it because this is a big deal. Um, it was only a year ago when I was literally sitting over at a national conference, the only one from Alberta that was there as a politician, and <laughs> sitting in a room and it was a bunch of U.S. politicians, and I thought I was the only Canadian there. And the um, course that was taking place at the time, about 80, 90 people in the room roughly, was talking about misinformation in the media. So there was a couple profs, uh, one from Texas State, and another one from California, I think another politician in the front leading this. And they were talking about the, the issues that were taking place in communist countries and socialist countries, how they kind of, you know, control the media. They were talking about the AI that's out there that runs these bots, that's misinformation, that's just spamming everybody. And then they started noodling around different ways. And one of the proposals was that you can maybe start controlling your media a bit. Like maybe that's what you could do. So I'm listening to this go back and forth, and there were some compelling arguments for all the reasons why elected officials should stop the misinformation, to put truth out there, like with good intent. And... Uh, um, I ended up raising up my hand, and at that time, there was a certain CRTC bill that was before the Senate. So I stood up and said, you know what would be a great idea? And they don't know I'm from Alberta at this point. I didn't say where I was from. I said, you know what would be a great idea? Maybe we should take some cash, um, set it to the side. We could all pull in, and then we could have our own government newscasting. Like, it would be 100% supported by us as taxpayers, and then that way they wouldn't be dependent on any advertising. So then we could make sure that they had unbiased information and we could make sure that the true story coming up from government was was getting lots of airplay. I said then maybe what we could do uh, with some of that residual volume of cash then we can also sell support and buy advertising and portions of maybe even fractions of those companies maybe buy portions of it, of those companies and then have them so they at least have that balance and now the heads are starting to look at me a little bit different and they're looking at this as kind of a wild concept and I said and then once we've got that fully established then we could take over the internet. And what we could say is anything that wasn't in the national interest or wasn't culturally appropriate, well, then we could block it. And maybe that's what we could do to control it. And then everyone's this pause. And I turned and I said, what I'm laying out to you isn't in a socialist country. Well, maybe it is. But it isn't Venezuela, and it isn't China, and it isn't Russia. This is what literally took place in Canada. And I can tell you how effective it is that you've never even heard that there was a problem until a bunch of guys from my province decided to jump in their trucks, throw some Canadian flags up, and drive to Ottawa and tell people that there was a problem. And I said in that last bill, this is being proposed in front of the Senate right now as we speak. So I said, we depend on you at the land of the free and the home of the brave. Do not go down this path. Please, I implore you. So it was kind of a mic drop moment. I didn't realize until later I was, you know, approached by this one gent. He's a senator from a, a progressive conservative senator from down east. And he regaled to the story he was sitting beside a liberal senator who was in the room. The liberal senator was going, he can't say that. He can't say that. And this guy gives him a shot and leg. says, stand up and take the microphone then. He's describing exactly what's taking place. And it's not until you have that sobering conversation that you realize how far we've actually gone. Well, how far we've slid. Right? Now this has come to pass. And 
immediately. And, 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 I'm not getting news feeds as a and, politician. And I've think, been blocked. And think the about, premier's <laughs> site was put down during an think election. About, and, and think about how, think about this. Think of how everybody's just like, ah, okay. I I actually don't understand that part. I actually don't understand. Eh, it's okay. Yeah, but I can get cat pictures whenever I want. And there's like TikTok things that are you know, looking people to stupid had, things, um, so I'm fine. I had Sean Buckley on, you know, because they've been been trying to pass these different bills and, they, and they've been attacking natural health supplements, right? And, you know, <clears throat> me being a younger guy, and I joke about this, older to some, but anyways, uh, I didn't realize, you know, and what I find out is this has been going on for a long time. This isn't the first go yeah. around on it. And he said, the thing about natural supplements that gives you hope is so many people use them that when they actually take them away, there's this huge outcry and then they realize, oh, we got to give them back. Sean, what fixed me for COVID and all the injuries and stuff I had was natural, natural supplements. Yeah. And it was a cocktail of mix depending on where I was at my progression. It wasn't a magic pill from the pharmacy. It was all and natural And you're honestly, Shane, you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Because like I, I think of Seth Bloom and his daughter. She's one of the lucky ones. If yeah. there if there is luck in this, folks, I you know I just go. She started working with uh, Pierre Corey's team down in the states because wouldn't you know it? There at the time there was nothing in Canada. I believe now there is a few different things that are going on here, um, but at that time there was nothing, and they started giving her like you know these cocktails of this is how you're going to get out of it. But I you know I I had on um, Kristen Ditzel, um, but geez, what was that a month ago maybe, and Jamie Killen and. You know, she's, you know, she has this wonderful, like, I'm just like, man, if the Canadian spirit could take your side of like, she's been completely screwed, like, you know, screwed and has such a lovely way of looking at it. And she's tried all the different things. None of them have been able to remedy what has, was happened to her. Right. So you're, uh, you know, like the, the health supplement thing is for everyone it does. I don't know what the, the, the percentage is, but there's a percentage that certainly it doesn't do anything. Well, it doesn't. Or I shouldn't say it doesn't do anything, but it can't bring them back to where they were. No. And, and there's things I still have that aren't fixed. Like it, it won't be in, you know, and part of it too is even the longevity. Like I've come to reconcile with, I might've chopped about 10 years off my life. Um, there's things I can't do. There's uh, well, energy levels I can't get back. Mobility in my arm I we, can't get back. In our, in our, I play noon hour hockey. Yeah. Right. And there are well, about forty guys. Two have had myocarditis, and now one has had a just got done surgery, and it sounds like he's okay. And I hope uh, you know, we've all been thinking about him. Brain tumor. And you're like, well, you know, well, it could be just happenstance. Could be. Or you could go. Well, I don't know. You know. Sudden adult death syndrome. Right. You know, it used to be one of those things, God, you know, what a lucky guy. He just passed away in his sleep. It was a rarity. Um, kids now, you know, I heard this most recent thing talking, normalizing kids having heart attacks from yes. overexertion on their pedal bikes. Yeah. Are you friggin' kidding me? So, yeah, th- there's there's you, the stuff, th- right? Yeah. Do you think about it? Like, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to go into the, the weeds on that. Not the weeds, but just like, how much do you think about that? Because I'm like, you just Lots. said, like... It, Lots. And the the frustrating part with me, um, with that, like Sean, and honestly, folks are wired different ways. And, you know, I've said it on a number of times, if <laughs> if anything ever happened to my kids and it was on um, on the predator side or anything like that, with what's taking place, there would be no place safe for them in heaven or hell. Um, it's on that same level. 
and knowing full well there's only so much I can do, more, knowing moreover a lot that I can't do. This it, is it's uh, it's yeah, it weighs on me a lot. You um you said don't attack. You know you're you're focused on the energy because you're like like this is this is serious. Um, a lot of people are focused on the fact that uh, they're still saying get your COVID shot, like get your new booster. Well, yeah, and, and 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 the thing uh, is, is if yeah. I go back to what you just said, it's like don't attack me because I'm focused on like this needs to be fixed. But that needs to be fixed too. Well, let's put it this way. Um, we just had a court ruling. So that decided what we could do or what we couldn't do as politicians with our chief medical officer. So that's definitive. Um, we've had two different studies that are taking place. Preston Manning was was doing one of them for us. 130-page um, report, correct? Yeah, so all of those are coming out now, right? So there's things that we can do that's on the surface, and there's other things that we need. You don't run out with one... Um, one one uh, bullet in your magazine when you're going out to war, you might want more than one round. That's about as, as saying it as loudly but as quietly as possible. You can only give me so much, I assume, on yeah. that. And it's on a number of things like that. And again, I'm um, as chief government whip, um, I'm still a private member. The premier and I came up with a definition of my role, of how it functions. It's not the same. Um, and everyone, like people ask me, what does the whip do? Well, I don't know. I didn't know until I got into it. And uh, if you're okay with me, a bit of a sidebar, I'll, I'll sure, let you know this one. Sure. So after the election, and, and again... Um, you should know by now, we can go where, you know, like this yeah, is well, what it is. You know, part of it's to his tongue in cheek, but depending on what's out there and what's been going on on your side too. So with that position, um, I didn't have a definitive answer. And, and literally, I, there was four ministries I laid out for Premier. And uh, I thought everybody did this. Apparently, this doesn't happen in the world of politics very often. I put in a proposal for each one of those different portfolios of what I would look at, the individuals that I would hire to come in, like literally not from the existing system, who I would bring in, which groups, which ones I would use. Here's the main target of objectives. Here's what we can complete during this timeline. Here's the ones that are going to give us the biggest net back. Here's the ones that are the social impacts that we can have. And here's the ones for the bottom. Like here's, you know, yeah, laying them out. Uh, four different ministries of which I felt my skill sets could be used. Uh, the other one I said to her is, here's my resume. Here's who I really am. So not who I've shown people to be as a politician the last four years, because quite frankly, I wasn't coming back. I was going to do what I could and get out and go back to life as normal. And during that time, I had to be kind of an outlier that they couldn't necessarily know what was going to happen next. So again, with having my face and all the things that I went through and knowing full well I'd jump in my truck anytime I needed to or jump on a phone if I needed to, it was almost um, pushing my own organization without being on the outside, but pushing as much as I could from the inside. So laying that out, saying, here's who I am, and quite frankly, I'm ready for a leader, leadership position now that we're in. Here's the objectives, laid that out. So it kind of backfired on me a bit. She looks at this stuff and then goes, um, have you ever thought about house leadership? You know, and house leadership being in the caucus and being on that side. I'm like, No. She goes, I think you'd be really good at that. Like have you, you've ran big project teams and stuff. Yeah, well, we need a lot of help there. I said, well, I wouldn't discount it, but I never thought about it. And quite frankly, doing that job is, but here's what I can do. So when she lined up her cabinet and everything else, she calls me up and then she, uh, she gave me the whip position. So obviously I didn't turn it down. I took it, you know, a team player, you do what you can and contribute and that's, that's the goal and objective, and that's, you know, a sign of understanding the bigger picture, too. So I had a call from uh, Speaker Kowalski. So Ken Kowalski is uh, uh, one of my constituents and a mentor, and he was like the longest-standing speaker or something in the House. So he literally went from the Lahey days all the way through to Klein. 
and I was honestly a little bit bummed out because I really wanted to grab corridors. I wanted to grab forestry or infrastructure or jobs and economy. Like I could have just lit those portfolios up. And, uh, he says, congratulations on getting the whip. And I'm like, uh, yeah, well, I guess I'll herd cats and you know, and he goes, no, no. She, and he says, you don't understand. That is the most powerful position in caucus. He says, you literally will know everything about everyone. You will be the one that she leans on as a, as a premier to take care of stuff for her. She's one you trust. Cause you talk to all. You talk to all. You also, he says, potentially have your fingers in just about every ministry. He says, and he laid out a bunch of things. He says, and also you'll have a very close relationship with the speaker. So the speaker is on both sides. Like you'll have an understanding of how that works. He says, and plus all the committees that you'll be chairing and taking care of and everything else. So after having that conversation with him, he gave me some recommendations and we had about four or five different items and three of my kind of thought how I'd run an organization. Then he gave me that political lens of how that other stuff works behind the, behind the mirrors and the curtain as it were. So when Premier and I sat down, we basically talked about what this position could be. And when I put it out, I said, well, I kind of had some inputs. She goes, oh, from who? Well, Speaker Kowalski, really? So we sat down as two, um, I would say juniors comparative to that type of knowledge to come up with how we would run the organization and what we would do on our side of the fence. And the other thing I warned her before I took the position was, I'm going to run it like I own it. So there's no half measures. Like you got to know what you're getting yourself into premier. Like I'm going to, I'm going to run what I can. And she wants that. So that was the deal. So obviously we've got a few things we work through, you know, as you're getting a new position up and running, but the latitude that I've been given and being tied to her as her parliamentary secretary literally brings me into her world as well on a lot of the, the international files and, and those type of items like intergovernmental businesses who I'm tied to and giving that lens of economic corridor developments, not just within the province. This is literally tying all that together. The other thing that she was awesome with is that I pitched, we needed a private members caucus. So we've got caucus of which I chair, and then we've got a private members caucus. So without the ministers there, so the ministers can attend, it's their option if they want to or not, but it is literally concentrating on private members' business. So allowing our, our team to, to work together, bring ideas together. If they've got great ideas they want for a bill, how to, how to work that. If they're having challenges or issues, then they do that. And I don't chair that one. What I have is a deputy chair, and the deputy chair was voted and elected by all of our caucus members. So uh, MLA Tani Yao, he's, he's our, my deputy chair. If I'm not there to run the main meetings or anything else, we work together as a team with my whole caucus group and communications and all the ledge coordinators and all that falls underneath me. And the entire budget for caucus falls underneath me as well. So that's the organization, how we run it. And, but Tani takes the lead in those meetings. So that's, that's how we run it. And then the main caucus, I, I have everything there and I chair those meetings and I'm, Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's a blast. Because you know, again, I got uh, to define uh, it, right? Two, well, two years ago, I felt like. Hmm. I was hating life. Yeah, that there wasn't. There so wasn't is, is may, may I just throw a couple things out and yeah. you tell me if it's, you know, the first time you were on, you were under Jason Kenney. Yeah. And the second time, you know, you're, you know, while we went through it all, you were on stage with Danielle Smith. Uh, then you were uh, supporting Travis Taves. Absolutely. Uh, and then now you have Danielle Smith as the, the premier, essentially yep. is kind of the timeline. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously she's, she's uh, looked at your talents and went, 
you'd be good for this and put you in a place that you didn't want to be in. But what I'm hearing is, is that you're actually really enjoying it. Yeah, because I got to define what that role is and I get to bring in um, my prior life of managing and putting process and procedure and managing groups and team building and all that. So it's like being the, the general manager in a hockey team. Like she's letting me do what I used to do. And I was giving a ton of this advice for free before on the other administration. And because of my, um, um, I would propose unpredictability and outspokenness that, yeah, that, that was a different organization. This, this is different. And even to her credit, I mean, I really like her. She's a good manager. Like if people want to start knocking her down on things, whatever, you've got a ton of political fodder you can throw out there because if she was a um, outspoken person and, and also was a commentator to get people talking about sometimes controversial items, but she's a phenomenal manager. She, she empowers people and moreover, she holds them to account. When we're in the cabinet room, she's one vote at the table. She's not the other management style. Like I'd said, there was an Ottawa style of politics. This is a provincial style, grassroots, as much as you can get style of politics. But understanding that there's um, checks and balances in place too. You don't want your managers within your, your organizations to just go along and nod their heads like bobbleheads. So she's not, she's also not just um, uh, promoting and recommending those that just nod their heads up and down. Like she wants to have an open dialogue. She also challenges, but also accepts negative feedback. So again, within that group, you've got a high performing group now that's empowered that can run their organizations and are held to account on it. And for me, that's phenomenal because that's a high performing organization. Like I keep going back to, um, to Enbridge is one of the best places I've ever worked. I was given a ton of rope with that organization. The, the, the culture was really good and that's how it ran really well for a number of years. And that's why people have stayed in that organization for a long time. I'm seeing kind of the same thing here when we start carving this out and seeing how we run it, that's what's happening. And even I put our, our new uh, MLAs through boot camp. Like I would never go to a job site without having orientation. So why would I send somebody into the political arena without having an orientation? So we took three days to walk them through that. We took all of our LCs to walk them through that. We're actually mapping out our processes. We're running a budget as if you're running a budget. All of those things that we did on jobs and projects, that's how we're running our team. And I even flew around the province um, and spent time with my new MLAs in their own backyard, like literally jump in the plane, fly up to someone's airport, have them come out and we sit there for an hour to get to know who they are. Your plane, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got got an interesting skill set that you can just hop in the plane and go (laughs) around. On some days I had to drive like I've had a head cold or whatever, but that was the idea on the front end. And then once we got folks on committees and we'll start firing up some of these task forces as well, we'll we'll match up their skill sets with that. So when the premier comes to me and goes, hey, there's some things or issues or challenges going on, I can apply which individual on the team does that. And um, honestly, it's building up some of that camaraderie as well. So that's how we're running the organization. So not going to lie to you, would never lie to you anyway, but we've got a good, strong, solid team. And I honestly feel that if something, if I were to get hit by a friggin' bus or if I chose not to run again or anything else, we've got a secession plan with this model that works. Policy is thrown through the policy committees first before they ever become um, a bill. Like literally you've got equal MLAs to to ministers that are presenting in one of these four different elements. So while this thing is being hatched out, it's all ground out internally, not a surprise on the floor with a bill. How uh, how much did you pay attention to the UCP AGM? Oh, lots. What did you think of uh, um, David Parker and Take Back Alberta and everything uh, being, you know, like I, I, I think I can safely say this, David, if you're listening, right? Like he puts it out on Twitter. We're coming. We're making sure we're, they're going to be held to account. We're, we're going to get... This person removed, we're going to, I mean, it's been 
if there was transparency, at least for my eyes, yep. he said it, you know, he said it in public. He said it on everything. He's like, we're coming. We're done with what's been going on, and we're coming in. We're taking over. Yeah, but taking over is, I sit on the provincial board as well. So I know all the new board members, the president and everybody. We haven't had our first real meetings yet, but this is another project team where David, um, being very short-sighted, doesn't understand his little ripples in every 10-minute sound speech actually has more profound effects than what he can realize. And it actually brings discredit to the organization and how everything works. So if I'm sitting in a meeting, as an example, with a bunch of consulate generals, and I have a CBC article coming up at the same day we're going to have our AGM, where some individual who is really good organizing and understands that side of it is putting out tweets that he controls a government. How do you think that looks on an international stage if it doesn't make us look like a banana republic? So the impacts are more than playing marbles in the parking lot. So perhaps, just perhaps, we should be cognizant of that. And David and I spoke right at the AGM, and I look forward to working with everyone who's in the party, regardless of whether they're a smaller subfractional group or otherwise, because this is a big picture item. So I think a lot of that will come out. I think, honestly, with, with Take Back Alberta Group, I've had lots of meetings with them, and the challenge I'm putting back to them is don't have a meeting in an area where you don't invite your MLA. We are the elected. Get your folks out there. If you happen to be our political stripe or not, doesn't matter. And any group that wants to invite me to their meetings, I'd be more than happy to attend right across the province. So again, this is the understanding that we've got a big chess match we're working on here. Don't fudge it up for us with little sound bites because, quite frankly, there's way more at risk than you realize. Who's, um, is there, I, I don't know if you can answer this or not, is there somebody from a bi different political stripe, color, that you think in Alberta specifically would be wonderful to have on here? I think everybody. Like, honestly, Sean, if you can have someone who, I mean, you and I have developed a bit of a, a trust, obviously, over the years, get anybody, anybody from a different background or stripe, because what you'll see is a different perspective. And quite honestly, what I want, honestly, God's honest truth, we've become too polarized over the years yes. because a lot of this <clears throat> has become people's religion. I don't know how else to put it. If nothing is higher than, than, than above you as politics, like everyone else has a higher power, typically, and if this higher power happens to be your orange stripe, that's a problem because again, seeing some of these behaviors and all you got to do, uh, is go back to like the topography of terror. So Garth and I went through that uh, like this. Uh, yeah. Quick, long answer to a short thing, but you have to get everybody on here. Don't be, don't be, a, um, so in your, your mind, get anybody on in here your mind, what is it? What is it? What is it? 80, 87, 87 MLAs. Is it yeah. Total, in total. So in your mind, it's like, well, just start opening the phone book and start bringing on every single one. Anybody who's bold enough to come out and have a conversation, absolutely. But as political as chief whip, I would want to know which members are coming on, and I would, um, I would probably have strong recommendations from my side of who would say what. You know, I tried getting Rachel Motley on. I didn't. didn't Imagine that. Obviously, it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, I had. I've, I've been trying. Because I'm really unco like I I don't want like I'm not a big confrontation guy you know yeah, some, pe you some people some people you're doing a good job of just asking questions like right people talk. and bringing people on yeah. and talk and it's uh it's well you look at um, the NDP and how they were built or Rachel Notley and some of the things she said I don't know how I couldn't have been a little bit confrontational and still couldn't be if she came on in saying that I would give her all the time to talk about her thought process I wanted Charles Adler to come on. 
I had him coming yeah. on and he backed out like three days before, oh, which bad. which was too bad because I'm like, as a kid, I listened to him all the yeah. time. And now I, I, I watch some of the things he says. And I'm like, I just don't know how you get there. I just, I just don't. I'd like to hear about it though because yeah. I'm like, I think, you know, as you say, we've become so confrontational and it's only getting worse. And there's only, so what's the, what's the solution? Well, and, and get, the wild thing that talking. I found, honestly, like you hear the conjecture in the States between the republics and the dams. Oh, thank God we're not like that in Canada. We're not so polarized. No, oh, we are. crap. I can have a conversation 99.9% uh, .9 of the time at these conference with a Democratic senator. I can't have those same conversations with an NDP MLA in some of their leadership. I've had really good conversations with some of the new ones coming in and again, new leaf and all that. And, and my God's honest hope is that we can actually have conversations. Do you think the NDP MLAs would come on here? There should be some. I might be able to think there's a couple that are actually pretty decent. They're good folks. That, like that would, from that, what I've seen, they're good that folks. Would, that would make their way out to Lloyd Minster. You know, well, one, of, one of the things, here, here, one of the thing, one of the things they, I've, I've appreciated. They don't have independence. One of the things I've appreciated yeah. about you is that, you know, and people will um, make up their own mind. I don't make it up for them. We talk about this lots. I'm not here to, you know, be the Pied Piper and yeah. let march people to tune. I bring people on. They text me their thoughts. And we have a discussion. That's all we're doing here is just yep. bringing people on to try and fill some of the gaps. Like, what the heck is going on? And one of the things I've really appreciated about you is every time we do this, you're like, I'll come out. And I'm like, man, I like that. Because this is way better than doing it on some television screen. It just is. I'm not saying that's going to work every single time. But when they're MLAs in Alberta, I'm like, I want to do If If I were to ever broach the subject of even remotely trying to go down 87 of them, wouldn't that be wild, folks? Holy dinah. Well, but you but if you were to do something even yeah. remotely similar to that, let's just take a fraction of it, 20. Let's say we could get 20 over the course of a year to come on. Yeah. I want them all in person. I wouldn't do this. I, I'm not going to do, we're, you know. We're, uh, we're social animals. 90% of our communication, I think, is all nonverbal. So, and it's the same as when your your um, listenership out there, I, I mean, with me, I don't know if they've ever seen me live with actually seeing a face to this. Usually it's the voice coming through. But people can pick up whether you're BSing them or not, if you're sincere, or whether it's a flashier eye movement. Well, I mean, you just, right? I just go back to your story. I, and actors and actresses. Yeah some politicians. Um, oh, and we take, we take lessons. Like even in corporate, I was put through acting lessons. You that was were one not. Of, yes. You were yeah, put it blew my mind. Put through acting lessons oh, yeah. in corporate. If you, don't, if you don't think corporations don't do that. Well, no, I do think they do that. It blows my mind that you were do, put through it. Yeah, it, it, it was. So it was, I was kind of an outlier in that organization because I was a contractor the whole time, but they kept giving me higher and higher management positions. So the company put me into this thing. First time I ever, first and last time I've ever been exposed to that. And I go to this, you know, thing, this training session, whatever. The director I worked for suggested I go to this and I go to it. And there's a bunch of VPs and a bunch of directors and managers. And here's an acting instructor. And really when it comes down to it, it's about communications. So how do you convey a message? So again, we, we weren't um, the public relations out facing part. You were managers and directors and presidents, but you had to be on point and you had to do those things. And even hand usage of what what would make people more comfortable and welcome and those type of things and how you carry your voice and recording you. Like a lot of us communicate, you've never seen yourself on camera, but when you actually look at yourself across the desk, when someone's recording you, well, you, you realize your body posture's off. Um, you know, I'm six, six, two and two thirty. It depends who I'm in with which room. And if I go down, so I don't intimidate them or I stand or up when and you're talking into the mic about or somebody make a playing marbles. to make a point. Yeah. That, 
that that comes up pretty natural. So you have to be <laughs> cognizant of those type of items, right? And that's uh, that was part of it. So um, what I would suggest for any budding politicians out there too, yeah, go take a look at some little basic level acting courses or well, communications courses. Where I sit on this side, yeah. uh, I guess I, I, folks, I've never taken voice lessons. I've never taken acting, none of that. But I do, I am a student it was of- one, It was one course. It was literally for the record, like a three hour exercise and it opened my mind. I was like, holy crap, this is this Well, is I'm, I'm a student of watching um, great performers. And now that I put on uh, events, anytime I go to an event, my brain will not shut off on like watching what they do. They see what they do really well yeah. and what they do really bad. Like, I mean, uh, I'm just like, uh, why are you doing that? Like, why? And then I, it's like a mental note. Do not do this. Yeah. But I, I talk, I've been talking lots about Brett Kissel because he once, you know, sat in your chair as well. And I went and watched him. And I remember thinking going to that show, and I apologize to all the folks for repeating this story, but I remember thinking I'm going to Brett Kissel. And I, I know it's Brett Kissel songs, but I'm not like, I'm going to Brett Kissel, right? Like, yeah. it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I got to host with one of the ladies from uh, town, one of the radio stations. So I got the honor of being up on stage, which is super cool. Oh, and, cool. you know, we're sitting there and <clears throat> I'm watching and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, oh, I'll just take off at 10, you know, after our last little spot where we get on stage and we do our thing, I'll just leave. But it was so good. The show was so good that it just sucked me back in. And every time I, I thought about leaving, I bet you there must have been a hundred people thinking the same thing, if you would. And he could see it and he would change something and it would suck everybody back in. And I didn't, wasn't up in the mosh pit or whatever that, you know, I wasn't standing, yeah. I wasn't dancing. I was just watching and watching what he was doing to, as a, as a, uh, putting on a show of how a performer, how he pulls people back in. It was, it was a talent. Like, I mean, it was, it was beautiful, you yeah. know, like, uh, and I, I wrote down a whole ton of things from that because I'm going to put on more SMP Presents. I'm going to put on more things where I need to keep people's attention. And uh, to just act like you're, you're going to walk in and the first one's going to be, you know, slam dunk, doom, that that was great. It's like, well, I mean, sure, your idea can be sound, but like to not see the little things and, and try and just perfect them a little bit. Well, it, it doesn't and, surprise me that, yeah. it doesn't surprise me that acting classes or on and on and on it goes because like you're in a, you're in a like speech or like, um, Public speaking, if you took a bunch of public speaking classes, you'd be like, well, that makes complete sense. I mean, you're literally, yep. you should be a strong public speaker in politics. And what do you find? There's a bunch that aren't. Well, There's a bunch of them have never taken 4-H. Well, and I never took 4-H. I did. So as a All kid, that, was, that was one of the one of the items was public yep. speaking since you were a little guy. So being able to convey and communicate with people and get thoughts and ideas out there and have that presence and that confidence, it's, it's a big deal. So... It's the little things that we take along the way and, uh, you know, the rural kids knock it out of the park every, and I just, it's an absolute honor and a privilege when I get invited to go judge these little guys and then give them some words of encouragement. You get to sure do that? that? Oh, it's a blast. Like, and honestly, they're, you know, 10, 11 years old. Some of them, you got the seniors that are, you know, high school kids getting ready, but the little guys in there, just awesome. And, um, their level of intellect is increased because they have to do the research and they have to be out there, their uh, outwardness, their motivation to do it overcoming fears, all those type of things. Like, yeah, 4-H is awesome. And then even if you look at the air cadets and, and the army cadets, like there's a bunch of programs out there that are just building great citizens that we don't give enough credit to. And still to. a lot of oh, cool yeah. values into kids. 4-H yeah. is, I mean, in this area, everybody everybody knows 4-H. Whether they've taken or not is a different story, but yeah. um, uh, very um, 
highly regarded program 4-H's for sure. Well, and I wanted, and it was, you know, going dip out of, down of a rabbit hole here, but what I wanted to do was to try to get the education minister to recognize, because um, I, I worked on this careers in education task force. We got a little before the election. Uh, minister Grange implemented five of the 21 items that we came up with. And essentially it was to look at how you uh, look at education as a whole and get kids on their career paths quicker and not on a specific career, but more like an industry kind of mm. level. And then you look at transferable skill sets, the way that you, um, and no disparity towards teachers, but if you've got a, a microbiologist, guaranteed they know a lot more about microbiology than the teacher who was trying to convey a slide or a screen on a bio page. So trying to hook in experts, subject matter experts, for resources not only for the teachers but allow them to teach and then also to spark the interest of the kids and then we started looking at some of the the training and the schooling that was taking place outside of this conventional conventional stream 4-h was one of them air cadets is one of them like you start looking at all these little organizations throughout there so now what if just what if so you know if someone's going to quote me i'm breaking down public education next or something wild but the concept is look at the skill sets that are being taught and maybe give credit where credit is due so physically give credits for kids taking these courses. Give credit for when they're apprenticing and doing these different trainings. So all of a sudden you start to open this up. And it doesn't mean that we have to build um, microcosms of this in each individual brick and mortar building in the school. When you look at the education, the careers, it's bigger than that. And when you start getting those skill sets, then they pay dividends back inside the classrooms as well. And moreover, it brings attention to those organizations that have been doing a lion's share, a great share of work, getting new citizens out in, in the place rather than thinking that it's just one stream that that does that, you know, the whole sounds tacky, but the whole village concept, let's pay attention to the rest of the village and give credit there. Before I let you out of here, I got to ask, oh, uh, I got to go over the topography of terror. Don't let me forget that one. Cause the original <laughs> lead in was, can you get other MLAs here? I told you I would, I would whip some of them to make sure that who you got on here didn't say anything crazy. Cause I can trust myself and that's crazy enough, but um, that's part of it on the communications. So it's not whipping people to say you can't say this. It's some some of the stuff we talk about a certain timing. Um, but we've got some really cool MLAs, and I'd love to get them in front of you so you could grill them and do those things. But as a contrast and a comparator, um, the NDP, uh, the Liberals, uh, they formed a coalition. Like literally, they're extremely socialist leaning. That shouldn't be a surprise to everybody. And when I say it, I always get in trouble and, you know, heaven Why? forbid. It's literally happening in front of our eyes. Well, There's nothing <laughs> extreme about this. I'll nope, be the extreme are. one. Anyone who says that's extreme, just turn on your TV or go read yeah. a newspaper and you can see it firsthand. Does it... I don't know. Hmm. So of all the things you said today, <laughs> that shouldn't be the extreme one. That shouldn't be the surprise, but it is. So again, as a political person saying out loud, outside of the house, they'll they'll definitely go after me on that. So they are literally a national party that's tied. So when you join the NDP, you're joining a national organization. You get a ticket to ride for free. So Jag meets your hero. He's your leader. That's it. You've already signed on. You're party below that in the provincial level, they're the same. They're tied to the same party. They have a little bit of latitude, but they're tied to the mothership. They are one party. That party has been backstopping a minority government for the last two years, putting us through all this crap. Correct. One socialist party that spans the nation. It is absolutely bonkers. So folks can't understand the concerns in that. Even seeing some of the new members like come into the, and, and the contrasting comparators while, so seeing some of the new members either heckling or saying things on the record in the house, making reference to my party. So the United Conservative Party, 
and they're making reference to your leader, Pierre Polyev. Well, no, he's not my leader. Danielle's my leader. Pierre happens to be a leader of a different political party that I might carry a card to. They're different parties. The Saskatchewan party is not the UCP. The Saskatchewan party is the Saskatchewan party. It's not the CPC. So there's the difference between the different organizations. And when you look at them, they're like the flipping Borg. They are one group. They got speaking notes. And if you want to see anyone who's, who's harsh on their own political so members, maybe it's the, them. So maybe one of the goals of the podcast is just to get somebody on from the NDP. Oh, yeah. I'll get you some good recruits because I think there's some decent ones. Um, they didn't realize that they've signed onto the wrong party. Like, honestly, I'm going to say that and throw the gauntlet down. There's some decent people that were not so far apart. And if you drank that Kool-Aid, I think you're, and they're going to find out over the, the course of business here over the next bit, we're not so different. What we do is we have the uh, concept on what the issues are, and that's typically the approach. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can maintain and I can, I can establish some of those communications so that it's not so hyper-partisan. But when yep. I see some of the main ones, oh, and here's the other one too. When I see some of the main ones that are actually, in my opinion, polluting the, the new folks coming in, that's where the system fails. And there's going to be a leadership race within the NDP. I can't wait to see that gong show. They don't have fully disclosed type races like we do. They're pretty much all predetermined and behind. I'm hopeful if they do to believe in actual democracy, like, you know, a new democratic party, not a nearly democratic party. If they actually do believe in democracy, then let your people actually run and do the same things we do, where you have nominations and you have contestants and you, you really get at it. And I would encourage all of them to pick their pr favorite leader and, and then actually campaign with them not just pick one in the Borg and then the rest is a farce. And if they have membership out there, maybe their membership should pay attention to actually who's running this. And the other wild one is that <laughs> we don't have, oh, my cup is leaking. It's taking too long to drink it. Um, I'm going to wreck the table. You'd be booting me out of here. The, the, the other thing too is we don't have corporations sitting on our boards in comparison. So when you have unions that have key positions on those boards, they're given that they sit on the board of directors. You don't have a separation between the two. So it'd be like me having Suncor has an established, I don't mean nothing against Suncor, but yeah, take, yeah, yeah. take a company, right? Yeah. Walmart. Walmart has to sit on my board. We don't have that. So the comparator and contrast is wild between the two organizations. So you're saying in the NDP, on their board, they have a union rep sit on their board. Yeah, correct? it's designated in their rules. And that's this is what you should do. Get your readership to go out there. Follow the rabbit hole down on the type of democracy they believe in, and then you go to Wikipedia, and then you see that it's pure socialist democracy. Um, that, that's what they believe in. It's a certain offset. I can't tell you off what it is, but it's, it's right there. Like, it literally says it within there. And then on their configuration, their structure of their party, they have designate, like, it's not like in vote them in or out. They are absolutely written in there that they shall, thou shalt have, I think it's two or three positions that are literally held by union members, which are non-voted, right? They're allocated. So so there's all this stuff, and then they're, they're the ones that are throwing stones in the glass house. Like, it drives me wild, but here it is. And then depending on the day, they may or may not own up to it. Is that your topography of terror? No. The topography of terror is wild. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I'm like, we, we might be, this might be, you know, I, I'm feeling very, uh, all right. Well, you break it up into a couple of chunks, but I, it's yeah, good to get here, right? Come on, folks. Do we, I release five <laughs> podcasts a week, Shane. Uh, this is, will just be episode 536, I believe. Well, this is bad. This thing is breaking apart. So, yeah, um, when we were going to Germany, we covered off the political side and, and all those things, and which was pretty interesting. But 
Um, I've been to Germany three times now, and a couple of times I was down in, in Karlsruhe, so through Frankfurt and over there. Thanks, brother. I don't want to wreck your table. There. And now you get a nice cup with a little mashup on it. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, like, have you been over to, to Berlin? Um, I've been over to Europe back when I was in high school, and then I okay. was in, like, uh, flew through there when I was playing hockey. So that's uh, that's 10 years ago now. Okay. Yeah. So the last couple of times I was there, I was working with a, a company by the name of Telos. It's a linear scheduling company. This is going back in the day. So it's kind of cool. You have a, a schedule program like Primavera or Microsoft Project, except it graphs it out on a time and a location schedule. So you literally get a chart. You can look at where your things are going, what the speeds of them are, which direction they're going on a linear right away. So it was sure. developed for rail. We used it for pipeline. Really cool. So that was down in Bavaria, down on that side. First time I've been to Berlin. We're literally flying over there while world, world events are taking place. And we were wheels down on October 8th. So October 7th happened while we were in the air when uh, Hamas, that terrorist organization, decides to take paragliders and then kill a thousand people. Not at once. They kind of hunted them down across the desert while they were doing this and then abducted a bunch of people, uh, over 200 people, and took back to their side of the wall, whatever they were deciding to do with them. And when this starts to hit home is that when we've got U.S. senators and representatives, the one U.S. senator, it was her two constituents with the, the mother-daughter U.S. citizens that were abducted. So this is happening during our trip. And we're getting newscasts that aren't the same stuff that was on the CBC here. We were getting, um, I would suggest, a, a lot more gritty and raw information that was coming out while we're sitting in Europe because it's literally just, just over the pond when you look at the things on, on the area. So we were seeing those events unfold. There was um, one of the members down there was an NDP member. Um, we kind of got some respect worked out over that week and a half of being there. But we literally walked at the same day um, past a Holocaust monument. Like literally when you're walking there, it was it was really profound. You're walking past this monument and it's on the way from the U.S. consulate over the Canadian consulate and walking along the Brandon Gate is right there. And you walk past this thing and you see some of the marks. And then you see the marks on the ground where the wall was physically, where the wall was. And then you walk by this one area and it was just um, heavy emotion. Like, I don't know whether people believe in this or not, but I think some of the stuff that we feel or, or people's emotions can impart themselves in areas or locations, like whether it's a... You walk into a church and you kind of feel an uplifting feeling or you walk to a graveyard and you feel a feeling. Just being on the edge of this thing and, and while these events were unfolding, um, you just felt this this kind of grief and this, this thing, at least that's how it imparted on me. And this NDP um, MLA or MPP, I should say, she kind of described, started describing the same emotions, which I thought was pretty wild. So again, we're, we're people. And she's describing some of the heaviness and she started talking. She had read about this area and it, it literally, it starts out kind of at ground level. And what they look like is, is tombstones, or I should say coffins. And if you walk down into this, there's a big swale in the center of this area. And it's almost like two acres of this and it's all concrete. And the deeper you go into this thing, the, the deeper the tombstones become the, the coffins, they're literally piles basically of concrete. So when you walk down onto it, you get this repressive feeling of everything, the walls are coming in on you. And the only way you can find your way out of this maze is walking in between all these coffins. So kind of profound, right? And her translation was on the art and, and those type of things. I didn't walk down the center. We were hoofing her to the next thing, but you're looking in this and you can see people 
walking within those areas and they bring school groups out there so you can walk through and, and the one thing Germans don't do is they don't shy away from their history. Like they, they're open with their history of what worked and what didn't. So you see these school groups going there and you see these kids, you know, they're kind of typical kids goofing around and you see the ones that are coming out and there's tear streaks, like just being in that area. So I took some pictures of it and, and did that. And we went on our way and took some pictures of the Brandon Wall or Brandon Cape when we were there and, and those type of things. And that night I, uh, um, got more of the news feed of what was going on. And, and I, I, I honestly felt compelled to talk about that and to say, you know, um, if you know someone in your community, cause I reached out to a couple of folks I worked with that, that were of Jewish faith, just to check in on them. Cause there wasn't a lot going on or coming back, but just being there and feeling that and, and trying to understand what they may or may not be going through. Um, just that one little phone call was so uplifting for them that they felt they weren't neglected, that they, the people weren't afraid to, to talk to them. Like it was just bonkers, you know, thinking of the difference of two days made of jumping on the plane, seeing them, and then the events unfolding while you're there and to reach out back home and to see how they were feeling. So I compelled people to do the same thing. It might be the simplest little thing, but it might mean everything to them. And, uh, Kenny, his brother was over in that area at the time. And fortunately he, he was out his synagogue down in Montreal subsequently was burnt. Um, Jamie and, and her family, um, they were all safe, thank goodness. But again, on this trip, one of the senators I'm with, chances, those are the two American citizens that are, that are taken. So this was profound. The next morning we're having breakfast and the, the MPP goes, well, it's a good thing I didn't post anything on that site because, you know, there's a lot of bad things and connotations about Palestine and everything else. And I'm going, what? She goes, well, yeah, you know, so I, I didn't post anything. And here I am, the conservative, going, well, I posted. I said immediately, here's this thing. Here's how it made me feel. And she goes, well, what do you think people say about that? And I said, I don't honestly care. I said, people actually kind of like me. You know, it was kind of the tongue-in-cheek thing. I said, they know me well enough. If I'm posting something, it's from the heart. It's not meant as a political statement. It's meant as, here's what took place. And she goes, well, I don't know about that. Like, uh, you know, she started almost backing Hamas. And I was very definitive. I said, they're terrorists, full stop. There is no politics to this. They go on paragliders and shoot citizens. There's nothing that you have to support this. Very clear, you know, and subsequently being back here, I've made statements in the house and to that effect as well. Like this is, this is not the folks of Palestine. This is a terrorist organization that's taken over that country and are doing these horrendous things. And for some reason we think we can hide behind it. So that was profound to me. It was wild. So Garth and I had that day and we went to the topography of terror. It's literally where they had the SA and the SS headquarters. They have all the, the records and documentation there. You look across the way and there's literally um, the Luftwaffe's headquarters of where they built this thing and, and their architecture is wild and it's, you know, from a civil engineering or architectural standpoint, like, I mean, these are impressive structures and everything else. Um, and that's currently the, the Ministry of Finance, like they actually are on that building. On the site, there's literally the wall there's a section of the wall there. So I've had the fortune of, and you're not supposed to, so whatever, I put it on Facebook anyway, but there I am leaning over a thing, touching the wall where so many people were trapped behind. And if they even got that close, they would have been killed. Like that connection with history. And when you walk through, we had a historian take us through and show us some of the pictures of what was taking place. And Unbeknownst, when you're going through and you look at a picture, you kind of have your own interpretations. But when you actually get to that next level of academia and you have someone who's, who's that's their background as a historian, asking you to look past what's being presented on the front, look at what's happening in behind, and then look the changes over just a short period of time of how that crowd is reacting. 
And one of them that stood out was um, some very conventional Jewish folks, some of the rabbis that were, you know, the Orthodox Jews. They had the, you know, the long hair and everything else in the dress. And they were taken out, and this is at the onset of when these things started taking place. They're conditioning a population at this point. So they took them out and they publicly shamed them walking through the streets. And you could see different reactions on people and behind it. And then they started showing how this took place over two to three to four years. It went from some people being kind of shocked and looking at this to some people kind of being apathetic towards it to some people encouraging it openly. And when you look at the organization, it wasn't a huge organization that forced people into this. What they made very clear to us was that you had an idea and a group and they pushed it down from the top, but moreover, it was organic from the bottom. They empowered people that had these prejudices or they had these beefs with people and then you started teaching them certain things in schools and then kids were brat on their own parents for not saying what the teacher said and then it just started empowering them. This fed all the way through that until the horrific events. Seeing what's taking place in the media, seeing how people are being agitated and turned on each other, to me, that was one of the spookiest things of seeing part of history ever. And it literally is happening again if we allow it. So why is Israel important? Why are these things taking place? Why is it important for you to have somebody who has a different opinion than me? Because we can still talk. And if we can still express it, and this is what the historian had said too, we lose everything when we lose that ability to have an open conversation and disagree. When it has to be so ideologically driven or we have to agree on everything, that's where we get into danger. So I would give my life to make sure that somebody could express themselves openly and disagree with me. My concern is some of the people I'm seeing on the other side wouldn't share those same beliefs. And that's where we get into it. So you might not agree with me. You might not like what I have to say, but I'm going to say it. And I will, <laughs> I will fight to my last bit to make sure you have that same ability to disagree with me. Well, I've really appreciated you uh, making the trip here and, and doing this. And I, um, you know, I don't know. The 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 the, the podcast has um, um, brought interesting people into this room, and uh, some of those people come and never come back. Others come fairly often, and others, you know, kind of like dip and weave and whatever else. And, um, sir, I, I've, uh, I appreciate you. Uh, I don't know. I would say um, somehow I've impacted that to where you come in here and you speak very freely. And maybe you do that everywhere, but uh, I don't know. I've been able to to harass you about just about any thought that comes into my mind today. And um, there's a lot of people that I don't feel that comfortable to do that with. Uh, there's a lot of nerves there. And I remember, well, as I told you, listening in 2021, I was very like, oh, man, am I going to ask a, you know, this guy this? And um, somehow you've uh, given me, you know, even on the drive here, you said, you ask whatever you want to ask. Like, just fire away. Let's go. There's going to be a few things I can't talk about, but other than that, just fire away. And I feel like, and I guess we'll wait and see what the audience has to say, because they always tell me whether or not uh, they picked up on things and everything else or whether they got questions. And um, But I feel like, you know, you've been very open on a, a lot of different things and are, are really putting forth uh, some seriousness to some certain things going on and, and alerting people. And I just appreciate you making the drive and doing it in person and making time for it. You can understand why I broke my, well, I think people can understand why I break one of my cardinal rules on a weekend for Shane because uh, we don't do this all the time. Yeah. You know, it's it's been a while since you were back in here and to have you come and do it and, and uh, you know, feel like there's something really we got to talk about, which I think we've talked lots about. Um, but I appreciate you doing that. So, um <clears throat> 
before uh, what we're gonna do is we got this we got this new uh, this new thing here, and uh, we've been switching over to Substack for an extra five ten minutes. So, um, how does that work? What, what's the deal with Substack? I've seen it pop up once in a while. But sure. What does that do? So, um, what we've been wrestling with is this question of like, I'm not making giant money podcasting. I'm making enough to survive, which. I want the entire audience to know this. This isn't a question of where I'm trying to guilt you into anything. I don't want that. What I want to know is, what would Shane pay for? What would whatever audience member, wherever you're sitting listening to this, what would you pay for? Do you do you tune in this every single day? Is it once every blue moon? Like, what would I what would I be willing to pay for for Joe Rogan? Yeah. Right, kind of thing. And when he switched to Spotify, that was a real gut check time because I'm like, oh, I, I really don't want to and I know you can do the free version I know you can um, but uh, over time I went I really want Joe Rogan I really want a bunch of different things and so I've been buying I've been paying for Spotify for some time Elon Musk and Twitter he turned on the pay yeah. thing and I went a lot of people were upset by that but I went do I believe he's doing good things yeah I do and so now I pay for Twitter and I have my own thought process down the road of that so we've been trying to figure out what this audience wants. I really want to engage it because I don't want to build something they don't want. Yeah. That makes zero sense. I'm like, let's build. We can do anything, folks. What do you want? Like, let's just let's just try it out. So we started with Patreon. And I didn't like Patreon, but I had Tom Luongo, who's a very popular guest on here, say, you know, you just got to stick with it. Be consistent. And he goes, Patreon's been really good to me. I'm like, oh, interesting. And then we talked about Jordan Peterson being booted off of it, and he made some very valid points. So we tried Patreon. People just weren't enjoying it. So then we put out the question, well, where would you like it to be? And people immediately said, I don't like Patreon because they screwed over Jordan Peterson, not to mention a whole bunch of other people. I can't support something that doesn't support freedom. Yeah, that's fair. Said, yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Okay. So where should we go? Substack. 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 I'd already started it. I'm not a giant writer. But the thing with Substack is now you can release, you can even podcast on there if you want. And so we started releasing exclusive content there oh, just because okay. okay. they can pledge money there, which doesn't get taken out of their account right yep. right now until we turn on the paid portion. It's just like, let's play around with some things. Let's just have some fun. And then the next question became with subs. So what we do now with guests is we've taken, I've just slowly been doing this, is we've taken the Crude Master final question. It has been mainstay since the very beginning. Ask me and about the pension plan. And we've moved it over. <laughs> sure, we can do that on that. We can certainly do that on Substack. Yeah. So we've 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 slowly started to transition the very end of the podcast with most guests I would okay. say eighty percent maybe a little under that I don't know somewhere in there where we go we're gonna hold you on for Substack so if people really enjoy the podcast and they want to get a little exclusive thing that will be nowhere else it's on Substack and the hope is you know over time you build it in a way that people are like this is worth giving you a little bit of money for because it all adds up because yep. you know like I can't go and demand that I get 10 million, you know, like the CRTC, $10 million for just having a podcast. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. Yeah. And, um, and so we've been really working with that. And so, uh, this is the question we just asked this week is like, so what do you want? Do you want, do you want to, you know, let, let's put it this way, Shane, this is what we've been flirting with. What if I could get Shane get, you know, uh, one of the ideas is what if I could get Shane gets and I'll singular you out to come on to a private zoom call. And the only way you can get access is if you're a paid member to Substack and you get a link the day before or whatever, the week before, and then you come on with me and Shane and it's a private meeting where you can ask Shane whatever you want. And it's just access in a different way. 
It's an interaction in a different way. Or is it a different way where I say a week before Shane comes on, Shane is coming on in a week, and on his Substack portion, we'll we'll talk about your questions. We'll pick the top three, if you would. Is that something? Or is there something else that I have never even thought about that some guests, uh, some guests, some some uh, audience members going like, you got to do it this way. You got to do it this way. I, I just don't know what it is. But I want that level of like, I want to pay for that because that makes sense. And if we can find that, then you're supporting what I want to do. I don't have to, and I, I'm, I want to make it very clear. I'm not struggling, but I'm not a world beater either, right? I would love to just have the ability to uh, do a few other things. But it, the problem is, is it costs money. Like everything no, costs, it costs money. money. It just, so, affordability, everything's going up too. And, and part of it um, is, you know, we, we pay inadvertently for CBC, whether we like it or not. Yes. And then part of the other one is um, now that the news media outlets are all getting choked off, how the hell do you do that? And moreover, uh, to your point, if we're going to have the ability to do um, open conversations in this kind of market, the, the cards are all stacked against you right now. So I think that's a neat idea to have. Um, I would throw it out any time that anyone wants any no BS political answers of what's happening that I can divulge on our side of the fence. Uh, or if there's people I've ran across before too, I would totally open it up. And to put it in context, there's this whole lobbyist organization that makes a gazillion dollars a year that they have these accesses, whether people like it or not, it's an industry. They basically do the same thing with all the politicians and connect people together and they'll charge you $100,000 to probably show up at some sponsored event where these guys can get people to happen to stumble in and talk to them for 10 minutes. Like it's crazy. So the fact that you're uh, willing to open it up to a breadth of people and have it kind of like on a donation type service or anything else, folks should understand the value of that. There's a lot of folks that compete and have their mainstay businesses make a ton of money doing it and here you are doing it for monochrome of it so uh, well worth the value i believe from my side um, i'll take it back and noodle as well and see what we can do to help out for that because again for us to do advertising get things out like i'm really fortunate i have um, the little newspapers like i write a weekly ar article of what matters to you and our challenge is trying to break that bubble as well is how do i talk to people that isn't censored there's no other way to put it when I give an, an article to a, a mainstream media outlet, it gets hacked up or they're trying to catch me in some bait and switch or some trap thing and then run off with it where your format, the, the reason why you get this latitude and this open conversation is because I trust you and your audience. I trust what's there. And I trust that the opposition is going to grab whatever sound bites and I don't care because to get to it, they've already had to listen to me for an hour to get to that point. <laughs> the other side is too, the, the folks that out there that need to know most trust you as well. Like when I'm walking across the tarmac at the Cold Lake Air Show, which I mean, this kind of choked me up too. It was wild. Um, parked my plane there, was part of the display. I'm handing out little stickers of, you know, made in Alberta strong and free to the kids and stuff. And uh, hand went out to this little guy in these little rubber airplanes, these little foam gliders that I kind of put together. And, you know, part of that to hand out. And uh, this dad kind of looks up and goes, are you Shane Gatson? Uh, yeah. And I'm wearing sunglasses and a ball cap and, you know, I'm thinking, oh God, this could go one of two ways or not. And uh, he says, I heard you on the Sean Newman podcast. I'm like, really? And I, and it was a good thing I had my glasses on, like honestly, because this just choked me up at that point. He goes, God bless you for getting on there and saying what you did. He says, because of that, I started engaging and started. And he says, I know it's about the kids. And I was like, oh man. So to have that ability to have that connection with people, to me, that's, yeah, that's huge. And then my little articles in the newspaper, like 30,000 people read that I had. 
a little guy came up 13 years old uh, and wanted to meet me and shake my hand and thank me. I had folks that were, because uh, I, the, the one that started on there, and, and I've, I've told some politicians, you got to lead with your heart on some of this too. If you want to connect with people, you're going to have to take that risk not to be the polished Teflon person, because quite frankly, people are tired of it. And if you're strong enough in your own skates, you should be able to do it. My son had brought back uh, some items. There was a friend of his in high school that was um, flirting with suicide, and that it was tough. And he he grew up in an abusive household. And um, my father was not a nice person, let's put it that way. And being a politician, and this is during COVID and everything else, like you're, you're trying to reach people and help them through that. And you'd ask, you know, how does it weigh on you? It weighs on me pretty friggin' hard of what you can do. So I, I put it out there of some of the things and challenges where I was, um, uh, there's no sexual abuse. There was none of that, but physical abuse, mental abuse, absolutely. Like three bags full like that. That was my whole childhood growing up and, and, uh, trying to keep my brothers, my younger brothers out of that fray. So I exposed some of that in this little article and, and the thought was if I could, if I could let folks know that it will get better. Like we've all been through stuff. We might not talk about it. We don't necessarily carry a little real red wagon of shit that we went through. Um, I think most conservatives use that, put it down, use it for whatever thing and then deal with it, move on. But if I could share that with somebody and if it could just help them, um, so it was a big risk. And, um, my wife was kind of going like, holy crow, Shane, like they can just lambaste you for this. They can do this and do that. And I thought, you know, screw it. It's worth the risk because if it helps someone, if it helps some 17 year old kid to realize that it gets better, like you just, you just kind of get through it, man. Um, then it was worth it. And, and it was, it, it helped out a number of folks and then had even a couple of town counselors came up and talked to me about some of their stuff they went through as kids. And then it got a whole group kind of working together and, so every time I write one of these little articles every week, there's some piece of me in there and it, it seems to resonate with folks. Like I might not be the most polished guy and I hope I never am, but if that's what your show is doing and that's allowing some of those things to come forward and, and if you need an alternate revenue to make sure that you're there, Sean, within reason, obviously, um, yeah, I, I would, and this is God's honest thing, I'm not trying to do a pitch for you, but there's a reason why I, I would drive six hours for a two hour conversation with you because I know it's going to get out to the right folks and, um, I know it's going to help someone. Well, I, um, you're speaking very highly of me and I appreciate that. And le- I always throw it back to the audience because I, I've been shoulder tapped a lot and it's really, um, I, I don't know, I don't have the words, but, uh, where people come up to you in different parts of the province and, um, you know, they're like, because of you, you know, I survived COVID. And I'm like, well, it's funny because of you, I survived COVID. You probably text me and I was getting harassed by different things or even just my own thoughts on where I was at. And it was because of all these lovely people that tune in that I survived COVID. It's, it's no, you know, I got, I got a great support group, got a lovely wife, uh, amazing kids, everything else. But, uh, um, that's why I try and enlist them in trying, you know, we can go anywhere you want. You want me to talk to 87? Do you want me to talk to eight, try and track down 87 MLAs? That seems a little bit insane, but it's like, if they were like hardcore, no, you got to do this. It's like, well, maybe I do, you know, like I, I, uh, some days I feel like I'm at the helm of this thing, you know, yep. other days I know I'm not, whether that's God or whether that is this, the people tuning in, I know I got like, I'm, I'm like, I know this thing's going to succeed because it, 
I've, I've given up trying to like control the conversation. I've given up trying to control a lot of things because every time I try to, it usually blows up in my face. <laughs> and I've been, and, and even further than that, I've been stepping on a lot of verbal landmines, I call it, where you just like you say something and it com- you think the conversation is going this way and you're like, uh-oh. And we go the complete opposite way. It's It, it makes for very interesting podcasting. I'm not going to lie. Like sitting in this seat and having all these different people come in here uh, has been a ton of fun. A ton of fun. I just didn't realize it could take so many um, different paths. I had no idea that that was possible. And so when we get to this point, it's like, well, I don't want to put my energy into 50 things. I want to put my energy into one thing that the audience... And right now, me and uh, Jack, the guy uh, from St. Louis uh, that's been working with me, I'm like, I don't want to do 50 things. I don't want to have uh, people have suggested locals. They've suggested, um, you know, different ways on the web- website and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, listen, we're going to do Substack. We're going to try it out. We're going to try out this one thing. We're going to focus in on it. This is what we're going to do. So within the bounds of Substack, how can we give you something you want that you're willing to even just come over to, yeah. to leave this this realm because you found this and I know how pissed off I was when Joe Rogan left Apple Podcasts and went specifically only to Spotify it took me three months think about that think how insane that is <laughs> to just like be like alright I'll download Spotify it's so easy but yeah. it's something wired in your brain so I know what I'm asking of audience members right now it's like listen I want you to come to a different platform I want you to be engaged I want it to be something that once you get there you're like oh this is super cool what is that I don't know we're going to try it out right now because we're going to tell you that the rest of this is going to Substack, which means we're going to pause briefly and then we're going to start right back up and I'm going to ask him about Alberta Pension Plan and um, what he's positive on in the future. So that's Substack. So come on over with us, folks, to Substack. Oh, this is exciting. This this is this is what's out in the media right now. And man, is there lots of fur flying and I can't wait to talk about what's real and what's not. 